What's up, everybody? This is Elliot Terrell, and you're listening to Magical Thinking. Our guest for this episode is Pop Hayden. So I sat down with Pop, who you've probably seen around. He goes to a bunch of magic conventions, and I'm sure you've seen him at the Magic Castle. He's the cranky old guy from the 19th century who's a certifiable genius. Well, I sat down with Pop to talk about the development of this cantankerous old character and how his approach to performing magic has changed, how his repertoire has changed, what is magic, what he wants his audience to feel, how he goes about interacting with them, and how he creates the backstory that influences his character decisions. We talk a lot about magic and story and how those two things interrelate. We also talk about how magic is a lying demonstration. That's a little quote that I pull from the episode that I really like. And we also talk about the castle in the 1970s and what it was like to hang out with Vernon and Billy McComb, who were some of Pop's great teachers. It's a wonderful episode. Pop is great and amazing. If you check out his website, popsmagic.com, you can find a podcast that he's doing called Pop's Podcast. And the first episode, I believe, is out, and it's called Magic and Story. So we get a little bit into it here, and it's just a taste of what you can get over on his website. As always, make sure that you are subscribed to our newsletter. Seriously. Big change to Art of Magic coming in the next few weeks. Seriously. I mean, I know I keep saying that, but for real. It's right around the corner. You need to be up to date on it because it's going to be huge. Also, follow us on all the social media channels at Treasury of Wonder, at Magical Thinking Podcast. Show us some love on the face box. Search for Magical Thinking. Search for Treasury of Wonder. You can like the pages and join the groups and get in on all the fun stuff that's happening over there. And to me, most importantly, go check out the behind the scenes photographs from Pop's episode on Patreon. If you're a patron of Magical Thinking on Patreon, you get to see the napkin that we talk about in the episode that Di Vernon scribbled a bunch of jokes on and signed for Pop. It's seriously one of the coolest things I've ever held in my hand, and I, you gotta see it. It's awesome. So you can go find that in the behind the scenes section on the Patreon for Magical Thinking. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash magical thinking. Alright guys. Get into Pop's episode. It's wonderful. You're going to love it. Enjoy. Oh, I just uh, published a new uh, a new podcast on uh, magic and story. Oh, yeah? Tell me about mm-hmm. that. That sounds cool. Well, it's, uh, I'm going to do a series of, of podcasts where I just talk about the theory of magic. And this first one is on magic and story. It's about 55 minutes. And uh, the next one is on magic and character. (laughs) So those are like two of my main things I wanted to ask you about. Okay, well, we can talk about it. Well, that's, I think that's amazing that you're doing a podcast on it. So what's the, what was the inspiration for that show? For that, for the, uh, doing this podcast? Yeah. Well, I've been meaning to put together a book on, um, philosophy of magic for some time, many years, and just never got around to it. And um, I figured maybe it would be just easier just to uh, sit down and talk about it like I would to one of my students, and just explain uh, the basic concepts of magic and uh, and story, and acting and, and all of that. Pop uh, Hayden is kind of a, an extreme uh, version of a magic character. 
um, is uh, something I attempted and uh, and got kind of stuck with. <laughs> you know? So what do you mean you got stuck with it? Well, um, when I was uh, uh, I was a, uh, one of my big mentors was Billy McComb, and he told me years ago he, that um, when I reached my mid-50s I would need to consider having a different character for my performances because you know up until that that point you can just get by on being a clever uh, good-looking young guy you know uh, <laughs> with sex appeal and, and fun and, and, and do all that but um, <clears throat> as you get into your 50s it gets harder and harder to compete with all the younger good-looking smart guys <laughs> and, you know <laughs> you have to find some kind of uh, uh, trick to some kind of way to uh, uh, compete uh -huh. you know in, in your later half of your career and he did that very well he turned into an old man you know in his 50s dyed his hair white he said it was like six years before he took the dye out and realized that he already <laughs> had turned white <laughs> But he said there are many reasons for it, and it also gives you a, a new perspective on your magic. So when I turned 55 in, in 2005 um, is when I decided to um, uh, try something new. And um, somebody asked me to do the shell game at a cowboy festival in Santa Clarita. Uh -huh. So I, um, I you know, had been doing the School for Scoundrels for, uh, since 96. And uh, 1996, and in the School for Scandal, had done all this research into the shell game and the different con games of the 1890s and the con men, Soapy Smith and George Duvall and uh, Canada Bill Jones and all those guys. And um, so I thought, well, this would be fun. This would give me a chance to uh, play with a, a, a different character. So I put on a fake mustache and uh, got together a frock coat and hat and, you know, put together the costume and went out on the street and did the shell game. Well, I wanted to do a Western accent, and I couldn't do one. Um, I tried, you know, um, summoning up Gabby Hayes or something. <laughs> that I couldn't make it work. Um, so I decided instead I would just do a, 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 an impression of my grandfather, who was um, from Virginia, southwestern Virginia. And um, <clears throat> Your grandfather, your namesake grandfather? Yes, Whitney Shoemate was his name. And um, he... Um, he had a very deep voice and a very slow way of talking, and um, so I kind of did an impression of that, and I lowered my voice quite a bit and um, did this deep Kentucky, Virginia kind of accent, and crowds just stopped. I mean, people walked over. And I have a big voice. I worked the streets when I was young in New York and other places, so I always and I had theatrical training, so I always had a a very good projection. Uh -huh. So when I cut through with this big uh, foghorn voice, you know, the people just stopped and turned, and I went, wow, this is really <laughs> nice. <laughs> and so I thought, well, maybe I should just um, do a character, you know, a Western character as my magic character from now on and work that out. So I grew a mustache and put together a, a full costume and um, just took a plunge. How did you develop the pop character? I mean, I see I see the inception of it is because it worked. Oh yeah, and well, well, the development came. Of course, I had the background. My first idea was that I would be a con man, mm -hmm. magician. You know, that pop would be doing the shell game and three card money and fast and loose and you know 
uh, little short cons and things like that. And uh, I, um, I quickly found that to be very uh, uh, confining, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so I wanted to do, I wanted to be able to do the um, linking rings, one of my favorite routines, and you know, uh, the cut and restored rope, Mongolian pop knot, all those old routines I used to do. I wanted to still be able to do them, so I had to change the history of the character. He had been a con man, had worked um, with Soapy Smith up in Skagway during the gold rush mm-hmm. in the 1890s. And then um, when Soapy was killed, he came back down to his old stomping grounds, you know, in Colorado, Nevada. And, um, there he met Tesla, who had a, um, a, a laboratory there in, in, in Colorado Springs. And um, he... Uh, you know, he was a terrible poker player, <laughs> but he had some interesting ideas, and Pop adopted those and um, um, tried to create uh, electrified water, magnetized water, and other things that he could sell, and he became a, a medicine man, and he also um, used, he had to have vaudeville kind of talents to bring people in. And one of the things he had done up in Skagway for Soapy is run the saloons and the talent through the saloons. And he kind of fancied himself a show business person himself. So that's where he adopted, learned magic and became putting on his own medicine shows, doing magic and drawing a crowd and pitching the products. Amazing Miracle Oil and um, the magnetized water, uh, medicinal whiskey and so on. So that enabled me to do all those other tricks I wanted to do. And of course, once I got to that point, it was easy to add the, um, um, well, and also I was having the problem of how do I bring this character into the present? 21st century, yeah. Yeah, because uh, I had seen, I was very much influenced by uh, Max Howard and his creation of uh, uh, Gus the uh, Hall, the uh, Southern Magician from mm-hmm. the 1860s. Um, but how he puts on the makeup and becomes the character on stage. And the audience has to follow him back in time and become an audience, you know, in the 1860s. Yeah. You know, um, I didn't really want to put my audience in that position of them having to do so much work because I, <laughs> I work for drinking audiences for the most part. <laughs> and so I had to bring the character somehow into the 21st century and you don't have many choices. He's 400 years old, you know. Um, he's a vampire or a ghost, you know. Uh-huh. Or, um, he's been transported here somehow. And so that brought me into the uh, kind of time machine thing and the Tesla thing. Um, Pop was trying to um, bring um, energy, electricity, to California in 1910, and he's uh, trying to compete with Edison, who had the um, alternating current. He wanted to set up what Tesla had envisioned, which is a tower that could transmit energy through the Earth and through uh, uh, electromagnetic radiation, so that he could light up light bulbs without wires mm-hmm. from a distance, and. Um, I had backers here in Los Angeles in 1910, and I went to this little town near Landers, what is now Landers, uh, called White Horse Ranch. And uh, we decided to set up this tower as a test for this little village out in the middle of the desert, you know. And um, something went wrong. 
not entirely my fault. It was partly wrong. Tesla never, you know, fired his up either. <laughs> and there was a kind of feedback loop or something. The next thing we knew, the whole town, my medicine company, and all these cowboys and <laughs> everyone were here in the 21st century in the middle of the fucking desert where we were before, but <laughs> you know, now we're in the 21st century, so we had to all learn how to make a living. And um, <clears throat> so the cowboys and so on, they, 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 they turned their village in, into a, um, a place for movies. It was a you know, ranch, uh, a village from the 1870s, they could turn into a, a movie um, a site, and they all were background actors for that. And they've uh, been doing pretty well. It's, you know, the White Horse Ranch is out there now. You can go visit it. Um, my company and I moved into L.A. And, uh, you know, it's been, we came here in 2005. So we, we've learned all about the Internet, what's going on, researched the past, <laughs> we're here in the present. Um, <clears throat> and that enables me uh, to come up to an audience um, from 1800s, from, you know, 1910, and yet know everything that's going on here. So if somebody says something about the president, I'm not going to go, Teddy Roosevelt? Yeah. You know, I didn't want to do a reenactment. Yeah. So now Pop is here, you know, and it, and he has to make a living. The only way he knows how is, you know, selling medicine. And this actually is a wonderful place for that. People, will, they'll pay $4 for a bottle of water. <laughs> <laughs> so that brings Pop into the present, gives him a reason why he's doing his magic. Why he's working from one place to a, another, doing magic, working at the Magic Castle and so on. Yeah. He's from 1910, but he can't really talk about that. This is all backstory. It's not a story I tell anybody. If you go to the Internet, you can look up Pop and you'll find all kinds of sites that are either fake or, or real sites by me that uh, explain or amplify his backstory. But we don't tell it in, in the show because you wouldn't if it was real life. Besides which... Pop's uh, birth certificate is from 1849. So he doesn't really have any identification that anybody would accept. We're actually, all of us from White Horse, uh, we're illegal aliens in our own country. <laughs> so we have to be good and, you know, abide by the law and stay out of trouble. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how it developed. And basically, I kept changing the story whenever I wanted to do something that I didn't want. So if, uh, you know, suddenly I decided, well, I can do, um, uh, put on a turban and do a, a mind reading act, you know, or, you know, crystal gazing. Mm -hmm. And I can do um, Electric Lady and, and uh, um, the uh, uh, Georgia Magnet, you know, and all those kind of things, all related to the electronics genius. And I also have a teleportation device that I've been using since 1980. And, um, it fit right into this uh, pop being a crackpot genius. <laughs> Basically, there's two theories that I haven't really decided on with pop, and I think I'll keep them both open as long as possible. Um, pop is either the electronic genius he proclaims to be, yeah, you know, and his objects actually work. Um, but he's an idiot, you know, <laughs> and his theories are all cockeyed, um, so that he's kind of like the Inspector Clouseau of science. You know, his, the things he builds work, but 
just by accident. He's yeah. just lucky. He just <laughs> Every time he it. builds something, it works, nobody can ever replicate it. You know, because <laughs> there's no logic in it. They, well, yeah, <laughs> they, 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 he doesn't have any logic to why it works, but you know, he has an intuitive sense. He thinks science is is more of an art, uh-huh. and you you know, I kind of like to do it by the seat of my pants. And it's kind of like a scary thing for um, some crazy old man with cockeyed <laughs> theories dealing with high-pressure electricity and <laughs> time travel. The, the um, teleportation device you know, doesn't have any vectors or aiming or anything. You have to kind of like aim it. <laughs> While somebody's holding an egg, you're shooting a dollar bill toward that egg. <laughs> if it doesn't go in the egg, it might miss, and you know who knows where it might end up. Yeah. You know, and that... That kind of uh, crazy chaos. There are stakes. Yeah. There's a drama. All of that began to change the character as we, you know, brought the story in. So mm-hmm. the, the character became more and more com- comedic. And I mean, when I first started, it was very um, Virginia gentleman kind of, you know, the, the gambler. Uh, Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's a great pleasure to be here with you tonight, and all that kind of stuff. And it was just. Uh, it, it was not as much fun. Sure. You know, and by um, Pop being a magician, he can create another Pop character, the Pop's magic character that does <laughs> magic. Yeah. So, um, you know, you see Pop behind that character when we're doing a six card repeat and the fumbling old man drops a card and everybody's going, oh, poor dear. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then suddenly there's still six cards. Well, he screwed us. <laughs> what they're seeing is, uh, the, the the character that Pop is portraying is a magical character believes in magic. Yeah, Pop is behind that like a puppet master making him work. But Pop is is the trickster behind him, you know. And behind Pop is Whit, Whitney Hatton. Yeah, you know, the original. So um, it's it's kind of a a fun multi layered um, thing to present, and the magic character gives you a chance to do so much more fun where the magician takes everything serious. The funny thing is that all the time Pop is doing um, the scarves and the ropes and the rings and all the classic magic, in his mind he's doing trickery. <laughs> and the Pop Hayden character, that the magician character he's using uh-huh. for the audience, believes in magic. So he really believes he's explaining how the Mongolian rope works with a special knot and pixie dust and mm-hmm. believes the whole thing. But it's just the character. Pop himself doesn't believe it's magic. He knows it's trickery. So the character, the sneaky snake behind this magical uh, character is is the guy that the mask is always slipping off, and behind the mask is Pop, <laughs> the scientist con man, yeah. you know, thing. So that makes a really fun uh, thing to present. And the odd thing is when I get to the um, um, magnetized water or the teleportation device in, and... Uh, and the multiplying bottles. In my mind, that's not um, magic. Uh, that, that that's real magic. It's, it's, it's like it, it, the teleportation device really works. Mm-hmm. It really does send things. And um, so, in my mind, that's real. Yeah. In 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 nineteen ten, pops mind that is real. And so that makes a whole different energy for that part of the show, for the Tesla girl, you know, and the other things that we do. It has a whole different energy. Um, because Pop thinks it's all real. He thinks he's controlling gravity through his Tesla coil. So he moves from 
knowing that he's doing trickery as a character, to then in let's say the second half he's, of the show, he's, he's no longer playing that character. He's, and he's, he's doing things. Well, no, he's playing the same. He's Pop Hayden, but but he's not playing the magician character. He's he's actually doing things that he believes are real. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. He, he doesn't really, but Pop from nineteen ten <laughs> doesn't believe it. You know, uh, mm-hmm. from nineteen ten doesn't believe in the rope trick, but he does believe in in the um, in the teleportation device. Yeah. At least that's one theory. Okay. The other theory, he's a total con man, and he's building that teleportation device, like all his other inventions, as as a fake using magic tricks mm-hmm. in order to eventually sell it to some you know <laughs> buyer who <laughs> buy the money making machine, <laughs> you know, because the con men they had like a Yellow Kid Wild sold a money making machine, and Pop would be the same kind of guy. He's the kind of guy that would sell X ray specs to kids. You know, and car um, carburetor enhancers to to grown-ups. He's a snake oil salesman. He is well, except that he's kind of um, in in the twenty first century. Um, he's overqualified for con man. <laughs> it's too easy to make a living here, just you know selling amazing miracle oil and stuff like that. <laughs> so he never lies about anything because he could get in trouble with yeah. the authorities and be hard to explain who he is and where he came from. Um, so he never lies. So when I'm doing the Amazing Miracle Oil pitch, everything I say is exactly truthful, and still designed to sell the medicine. You know, um, the Amazing Miracle Oil is a hundred percent pure mineral oil, has no additives, chemicals, dyes, or perfumes, no dangerous active ingredients. It is spiritually enhanced and mesmerically influenced through the application of natural organic magnetism and animal energies in a secret shamanic ritual first revealed to me by a placebo Indian medicine man from Cucamonga. <laughs> <laughs> the placebo effect has been scientifically demonstrated. <laughs> well, anyway, so that's the attitude. So when he does the sale, he's, he's, he's bound by the restriction he can't lie. He's got to tell the truth. Uh-huh. And so that makes the medicine pitch uh, a lot more interesting and fun. It, it it must be so much more creatively interesting, of course. But as a spectator, as a layperson, I would imagine that you know all of this uh, thought and care and character development is felt in the performance. I mean, it, it, there's no way it's I th- not. I think it is. I think well, you see, that's a thing about acting and backstory. Um, I think when magicians combine theater with uh, uh, magic, they often get it wrong. They, they they keep trying to put magic into a theatrical story, a narrative story. Um, where actually, um, it's not really part of a story. It's 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 more like a soliloquy where the character walks out to the audience and talks to him. You know, um, <clears throat> the magician character. Um, it is only with the audience for 20 minutes or so, you know, if that. Mm-hmm. And in that time, that's the only experience they get of him. His story starts when he's introduced or when he introduces himself and when he leaves. And that's the end of the story as far as the audience is concerned. But from an actor's point of view, that character has to have a life going up to the moment he walks on stage and a life continuing after he leaves. And that's the backstory, and that story is what makes everything he does in that twenty minutes seem real, and have some kind of integrity. Um, I think that this is when when we first start out, 
most of us are just playing um, a character uh, of a magician, which is a convention in our literature, in our culture, yeah. and in fact in almost every culture. The idea of a person being paid um, to, to do the amazing stuff, to, to entertain with the amazing stuff, well, that's a cultural convention all over the world. And we have a mindset in our, in our culture, the people have a certain idea who this guy is. They assign him a certain thing. He's a tricky person. We don't know exactly what he's doing. Um, and in some stories I've read, it had re some of them had real powers, could really read your mind or stuff like that. And then, um, you know, so the, the culture, when you hear the word magician, we got to, oh, okay, who is this guy? Well, he's a guy that does magic. Come do some magic. Yeah. And so we already have that going for us. People kind of know who we are. And we don't have to really know much more about it. Um, the first story that we tell is the story of the trick itself. We, um, the, the important story of magic is the story that the spectator tells about us. Um, when I, 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 I have a card selected, it's a play. We start, started a little play. I'm the protagonist. Here, I've got a deck of cards. Take one. The guy takes the card. Suddenly, he's the antagonist. He's going to look at the card and not show me. He's going to want to put it back in the deck and he maybe want to shuffle it. There's conflict, mm -hmm. you know. And then we find his card. There's resolution, you know. And there's a denouement. And that's like a whole little play all in itself. And that story is, this, is the one the spectator wants to tell. He, I saw this guy and here's what happened. Yeah. Right? Um, so our first job is to learn to tell that story, to get all the facts right, to let the spectator feel like he had an experience of something re remarkable. You know, mm -hmm. um, he, the magician took a coin, put it in a bottle. Well, <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> no, that's what really happened. Well, no, it must have been a trick bottle. <laughs> I drank a beer out of that bottle. Well, it was a trick coin. I examined the coin. I well, bought, he borrowed it from me. Yeah, maybe, yeah. Maybe, 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 maybe he switched the coin on you. Well, maybe he did, but I was holding the bottle by the neck. It was empty. He put the coin in through the bottom of the bottle. What kind of trick coin can go into through a bottom of a bottle? <laughs> well, I'd have to see that. See, that's the important story. That's the story that we need them to tell. Yeah. It's the simpler it is, the better. Vernon said it's better if you can explain the whole trick in one sentence. You know, I put my name on a card and put it back in the deck, and he threw the deck on the ceiling. My card stuck to the ceiling. My card ended up in a sealed envelope in his pocket. You know, something like that is a real clear, easy thing to, to, to say. And it's going to be a, like a ghost story when you tell that story. People are going to say, no, that didn't happen. <laughs> no, that's impossible. See, we tell a ghost story because I saw a ghost last night. I said, no, you didn't. <laughs> yes, I did. Well, you were probably dreaming. No, I was standing up. I was wide awake. Well, you're probably doing that funny smoke stuff or <laughs> drinking too much. No, I was stone sober. Well, somebody was playing a trick on you. No, I was in the middle of the woods. I was 100 miles from anyone. Well, what, what happened? Tell me the story. <laughs> well, it's the same way with a magic story. You say something, a good magic story, people are going to say, no, you must not have been paying attention. Did you look for this? Did you look for that? They want to make sure that you checked so that they're, you know, so it's believable. Maybe you're just not a good observer. So what happens is we try and uh, give an experience. It's more like we're the lead actor in a, in, a, 
improvisational play and the spectator is um, our other actor and the specta- all the spectators, they're fellow actors, uh, improv actors, and they're playing the part of participants and witnesses to the magic. Mm-hmm. So they have to be able to tell us, no, he looked for that. Maybe he forced the card on you. Oh, I didn't think of that. Well, that's a stupid story. I won't tell it anymore. Yeah. On the other hand, he says, no, it couldn't have been a force. Even after I had my finger on the uh, other card, he said I could change my mind. I could take any other card I wanted. So it couldn't have been a force. See, you want to be able, he needs to be able to defend that story and make people believe he was a credible witness Mm -hmm. and ask the right questions and look for the right things. And once he does that, it's a good story. And he tells that story, and people go, wow, I wish I'd seen that. Well, now he'll go to town. Every time the subject magic comes up, he'll want to tell his story. And it'll keep getting bigger and bigger. As, as people object with new objections he hadn't thought of, he'll come up with a solution to them so he, they don't take away his story. Yeah. Because now it's a good story, better than yours. So that's what we want. And that's when they start lying to build that story up and make <laughs> it even bigger. Well, that's the important thing, and that's all a matter of making sure that the trick is played out in the right way so the audience absorbs all the information they need to believe it's magic or at least that it's impossible as far as they can they can't see it's not enough that they don't know how it's done they have to believe there's no possible way it can be done that they can imagine yes you know and when you get them in that position um well, then you can you can tell them anything. They're they're in the midst of astonishment. You you can suggest anything, and they'll believe it. And that's how they remember it later. I do a trick uh, with a, a ring and a watch in the envelope, where uh, I steal the person's watch, and they don't know it. And then I put it in my wallet inside a sealed envelope, and I end up with a Paul Paul wallet, hand it to them. So they're holding both ends of it, and I've just borrowed their ring. And I use ring flight to make the ring vanish. Well, they open the envelope, the wallet in the envelope, and thinking their ring's going to be in there. Instead, it's their watch. And they've been holding both ends of the wallet and don't realize that the watch is even gone. Now their watch is inside the envelope. Their mind is so totally blown. And I look up and I go, okay, about your ring. Um, Well, I'll tell you what. Out in the glove compartment of my car, that's it out in the glove compartment of my car, locked in this little wooden box, locked in the glove compartment, locked in the car, is your ring. You buy that? No? Well, I'll prove it. I'll prove it. Here, you take the keys of my car, go to the valet, have them look in the glove compartment, look in the seal, oh, I missed. That's your ring, isn't it, on my keychain? Well, that's it, here. It's a terrible ending for this trick. Must. Now it's the key to my car. It's locked in that little wooden box. (laughs) (laughs) You're not overly concerned about my problem, are you? Well, see, I repeated that uh, uh, locked in the car, locked in this glove compartment, locked in this sealed box is your ring. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't believe, and it's happening right at the time that you reproduce the ring and they got their watch back and they're just totally in amazement. I'm planting that thought in their head by repeating it a couple of times and later, a year later, I've had so many people who can't believe come back and go, remember that time you stole my ring and my watch and you put the ring out in the 
uh, glove compartment of your car and show that to my friend. <laughs> and I go, well, I do it a little different now. <laughs> but that, that moment is uh, of astonishment, you can think. But the important thing of the magic is you tell the trick that they get to defend it. That's the important story, the story of the trick itself. Now, a story like that, if it's good, like the coin in the bottle, you don't need much who, who was this magician character? What was he like? Nobody cares. He'd put a what and a what? And it's a great story. It stands by itself. Yeah. You don't need much presentation. You don't need much more than just here, hold this, bam, look at that, bam. It's so clear what happened and it's so clear how impossible it is um, that, that people are helpless. And they, <laughs> um, they're just totally blown away and they can tell that story effectively and anybody that hears that story will be blown away you know if that person can defend it and they want to see it and that's sort of the whole point so if we get that much done we're doing great and that's what most people have to start out learning but now as you put more than one trick with another see people sit around and watch a trick and bam it's so good oh wow wow I might you know wow that was great um, and then you say, you want to see another one? They say, um, okay, that was great. And so you start out another trick. Well, it's a slow build-up. Mm -hmm. Then you get to an end. So it's like build-up, end, build-up, end. And pretty soon people are getting a little tired of this. No matter how great the effects, eventually it's kind of like it's harder to hold their attention. Yeah. To string all these effects together, we need a more of a story. Who is this guy? We developed a character is a more interesting, remarkable character. We have to remember too that the character we create has to be somebody people want to spend time with. <laughs> you know, you can create a very interesting character. Um, uh, uh, you know, for instance, Shakespeare. You know, uh, you can have a very interesting character like Iago. But uh, most people really, when they're having a beer wouldn't want to sit down for 30 minutes with Iago. Yeah. You know, on the other hand, Falstaff, who wouldn't want to joust with <laughs> Falstaff and parry his uh, clever repartee and have fun? You know, this would be an entertaining, amazing person to have. So yeah. when we're thinking about our character, we really want to make it somebody that people want to spend time up with close up. You don't want to be necessarily a stricken poet, you know, <laughs> in a close-up show. Plus, you have to recognize... The character has to be able to be accepted within the environments you're going to be performing in. Yes. You know, um, so you consider all of those things, but you begin to gradually go, well, why does this character have these powers? How, what, what relates all of these tricks that I've, the stories I've just shown you, these four or five tricks, they each have a different kind of point to make usually, you know, and what, what different powers are being invoked. Um, one trick might be the story of a, a magic object, a mm -hmm. coin box, magic coin box, right? i show you something interesting. Col collectors love these from the 1840s. It's a magic coin box. That's what they call them. And then you go into the trick. It's just a little story to introduce the trick. But it's not a narrative. Yeah. It's not meant to take the people on a journey. Because then they, they forget about the box and what's happening to it. The important thing is this is a special box the coins can melt through the bottom and through your hand, you know, go through the box and all that kind of stuff. That's that's what you want people to remember. The setup story is just that. It's a setup, you know. 
It gives the routine context. Yeah, if you get into narrative, um, the narrative can quickly overcome the magic. That's the problem. A lot of times, some magic um, is done not for the sake of the magic. It's done to uh, for propaganda or to sell something. Um, you have uh, gospel magic or um, uh, drug anti-drug magic. You know, uh, climate change magic. Yeah. You know, uh, this is magic that's used to sell a product or to make a point. You know, um, well, as soon as you do that, uh, you've changed the goal. If you want to sell something, or you want to prove something, you know, you want to uh, tell kids not to do drugs. If the trick is too good, it'll screw up the message. Yeah, kids will go, "Wow, did you see that? How did that happen? How do you do that?" And they'll suddenly forget all about the anti-drug message. They won't even hear it. You know. Um, so magic, when you're delivering a message, the magic has to serve the message. Same thing when it serves narrative. If you're using a magic trick in a play, um, for example, you want to have Dracula jump over a couch and turn into a wolf and run off the stage. Mm-hmm. You know, you can do that with the actual magic trick. And uh, they did on stage. You can have uh, a guillotine that looks really good on stage if you want using magical principles. Or you can make uh, Peter Pan fly invisibly with magic wires right through the window. You know, um, the thing you have to keep in mind is that the magic has to be truncated so it doesn't take people out of the story. Mm-hmm. If Sidney Carlton is in Tale of Two Cities is being led to the guillotine, and that guillotine comes down and suddenly his head actually pops off and rolls into a bucket and blood goes everywhere, and it's too believable instead of listening to uh, the ending of the of the piece the audience is jumping out of the seat is he okay what happened and, you know they're afraid that the actor's been hurt yeah the guillotine was too strong you know um for the scene yeah it took people out of the scene same thing with peter pan you know how is he fine what the you know it used to be you could accept it he was on ropes and you'd mm-hmm. see the ropes and yeah. you just you just write them out in your mind yeah you that's know. the suspension of disbelief. That's the suspension of disbelief. That keeps you within the narrative. That's the whole idea. Um, sp- suspension of disbelief is really... Um, Coleridge was talking, when he talked about it, he's talking about poetry, but it yeah. applies to uh, all literature of the impossible. And it's one of the things we should consider because we're part of that literature. Magicians are part of the impossible. We're, we're uh, performers of the impossible. So... Our subjects, our themes, can be anything from alchemy, uh, alien electronics, you know, um, uh, ghosts, um, demons, um, magic, you know, uh, ESP, uh, all kinds of things. We use all kinds of themes. Magic's just one theme of what we do. Yeah. And we've always had more than one theme. Remember uh, the, 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 the Turk, the chess play of the Turk? The theme of that was a machine that could think. Wouldn't that be magic? And that's and it, it led to the development of the computer, just like Star Trek created the flip phone. Yeah. You know, um, magic has often been provocative. The robot, you know, the automatons of, of the 19th century became Houdini's uh, evil robot in his 1915 uh, films. The first robot in the movies was Houdini. Um, and so. Um, Magic is, is, is something that, it, it, 
it's a theme of the impossible. I have a teleportation device. It can send stuff from one place to another. Really? Let's see it. And you prove it. Yeah. You know, people know it's not real. You know, that's not the point. Magic is a burlesque of um, a demonstration or a proof. Um, magic has always been a burlesque. It's one of the things I don't agree with people that think we came from the uh, religious shamans and, and others. I think we came from the people that made fun of them. The uh, guys on the street doing uh, cups and balls, uh, uh, they, were, they were making a burlesque of magic yeah. and the people that were claiming to be real. Um, and they knew it. Uh, um, Seneca in 100 um, AD said, when I watch these cups and balls performers on the street, I'm fascinated. But once I learn how a trick is done, I lose all interest in it. Well, that's a very modern... I think we sometimes think of our art as being something that, until the, our time, everybody thought it was real. Yeah. Well, the Victorians were... They, they were not. They were. They were making fun of this stuff. They were making fun of, of of Faust and Mephistopheles, and that's why they had the little demons hanging on them and stuff. Um, the Davenport séance was described as a laugh riot. <laughs> it was meant to be funny. Yeah. You know, and we forget that uh, if you look at the actual shows of the eighteen eighties and nineties and twenties. Um, they were a lot of fun and people took it seriously. Now, it was at a special kind of um, thing back then. I think they, they were aiming for the family. Uh, the magic shows then were kind of like Indiana Jones now. They were aimed for the nine-year-old kid's heart. But they wanted to capture, they wanted to wink enough at the grown-up to the, we know you know this is crap, but it's coming in it. So when, when you take your kid to see Indiana Jones, you're having as much fun on the ride as he has. You may be enjoying the naked girls a little more and uh, so on, but the girl, the little girl or little boy that you're with, um, they're enjoying it on a, a different kind of level. Yeah. But it was that uh, stories for boys and stories for girls kind of, you know, um, fantasy level. Um, if you looked at those guys, there was... Uh, uh, Carter with a pith helmet capturing animals in the outback. You know, he was the Kai Beatty of magic. Um, um, Blackstone was a magic detective. He had a comic book. He had a radio show. When kids went, went to see Blackstone, they were going like to see Indiana Jones from the movies. They were going to see a hero that they already knew about do his magic show. So that's what drew him in. That was the backstory, and a lot of times the backstory I mean, he created with radio shows and, and comic books, but a lot of people just, they had less to work with. They only had the posters, mm -hmm. and those big posters of Shung Ling Su in the caves of the Orient, and um, um, Blackstone the detective, and, and uh, Carter, you know, and so on. All these guys had some kind of backstory that the poster would kind of present, and then people would go, and they'd have that backstory a little bit in their mind. Well, today we have a chance to use the internet. It's it's almost free, you know, and we can create a huge backstory for our characters on the internet. And I think the advantage of that is we can attract a lot of people to our shows who who discover us on the internet and then see our videos and stuff and then want to see us live. But we also people see us live and they want to know more about us. They look up our website and stuff, or look up uh, other things. Then um, they get a chance to see the backstory. And we can tell them more about who the character is and why. Because in reality, if we were really doing this, um, that 20 minutes we get with the audience, that's all 
we have with them and we don't spend it telling them who we are and where we came from and why we're doing what we're doing we just do it yeah you know we're there they you know so for me my backstory is i landed here by accident in 2005 i've been here ever since i'm a very smart person been catching up as fast as i can i know most of what's going on i know the internet inside and out and um we're trying to raise money so I can put my big show together and employ all the people that I brought with me. Some of them are still pissed about landing here. And um, <clears throat> so this lady has hired me to entertain her guests with some magic tricks. You're one of her guests. Take a card. And that brings me up to the moment of yeah. the show. Because uh, I think that's, that's what people leave out when they're talking about the magic story and the magic character. All this backstory is important. But it's left <laughs> at the door. Mm -hmm. kind of. You come in and do the show as if it was all true, and you leave as if you're going back into that story. It's continuing without them. But that story is what they get to hear. Now look at it this way. If that story was a Twilight Zone, it would go like this. So we were at this party, and this guy comes over to us you know, and starts to show us some magic. And then Rod Serling walks out and goes, little did these two know, this wasn't just any magician. And that's when we start the story. We're writing the story. So what would it, what would it be like if this was a real guy and he had real magic? And what would it be like? What would it seem like to those guys? Well, we're helping them write this experience. I mean, we're helping them create this experience for them to tell later. Mm -hmm. So... Basically, that's how I look at the character of the magician. And it, the more interesting he can be, the more fun he can be, the more expressive he can be, the better. But at the same time, the audience is aware that uh, this character um, is often playing a, a lie. He's lying to us. He's, he's always winking at us. Yeah. And I think that's the important thing. The closer we get to charlatanry, the less fun magic is. Magic is based on the dilemma uh, there's no such thing as the impossible. I just witnessed the impossible. Yeah. There's no such thing as magic. There's no other possible explanation for what I just saw. They know it's sophistry. They know they can't figure it out, but they, they know it's not real. They, you're not trying to convince them. If you're trying to convince them magic was real, you'd be a mentalist, you know, uh, or a charlatan. Somebody's actually trying to sell you, you know, um, uh, an electromagnetic he healing device. So magician, we always want them to know it's fake. We're not trying to m make converts to the idea that magic is real. It's part of the fun of it. It's, it's what gives it the wink. It's what en enables us to play both characters. Because if we come out, and a lot of guys do, just as the, um, as the um, uh, trickster, the trickster character. I am the trickster. I've studied magic. And I know these tricks, and I can show you them, and they, they seem impossible. And he might not even make any magical claims. I, I just worked on this. I can fool you with this. It's not real, but I can fool you with it. Um, well, that becomes a little harsh, actually. You know, it's the lie that gives magic its charm. Mm -hmm. Because if you're face-to-face -face with the trickster, it's like being face-to-face -face with a shell game guy. It's me against you. Who's smartest? Yeah. Who's fastest? People eyes. don't like that. Well, eventually it becomes very competitive, and they lose. And if they don't lose, you suck. <laughs> you know, so it's a, it's a, it's a, not a good game to play. You want to play a game where both sides win. Mm -hmm. So if I'm going to play the part 
of a con man, maybe you would play the part of a sucker and we'll have some fun. You know, I'm basically involving you in the game, so we're playing a part. And, and that's, that's how you get the other actors, the participants and witnesses, to play along. You know, you, you let them know that they're going to play this part, you're going to play this part. We're going to go on a little game, suspend disbelief, let's play. Well, what they're doing is they want to follow. I think this is what I was getting to with the Coleridge thing. Coleridge says uh, people will often reject magic, the impossible. There's no such thing as magic. And there's no such thing as fairies. There's no such thing as ghosts. Posh! They don't want to read the story. He said, well, see, that's the problem with doing stories about the impossible. It's easy to reject it out of hand when you might have something more interesting involved than whether it's true or not. Mm-hmm. You know? So he said that you need a character with whom the audience relates or is interested in, whom they will follow his adventures into the world of magic and fantasy. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what basically the magician is. But I think our job is not to convert them to magic, believing in magic. That would be the charlatan's job. Our job is to open the door to fantasy a little bit and then stick our foot in it and lean against it with our shoulders so people can peek out, but they can't get out and they can't come back in. You know, it's like, it's just, you get a peek yeah. and let you think about it. Because the dilemma forces them to go back and forth. It's like, well, there's no such thing as magic, but how else could he have done it? So what, if what maybe it was a trick coin. Well, it couldn't have been a trick coin. It couldn't been, and they keep coming up because the sophistry is such that the argument is like a, a logical argument with a valid form, but some of the premises are not true. <laughs> <laughs> Once you get somebody to, to agree to all the premises, the coin was in his right hand, he snapped his left fingers, he opened his hand, the coin was gone, it must have disappeared. Mm-hmm. Once you've accepted it, you keep coming back to the same conclusion. Well, it must have disappeared. Where else could it be? It wasn't in his other hand. You know. So once you've proved everything, they keep coming back. There's no possible way. There's no possible way. And they know, on the other hand, that it didn't really happen. You're tricking them somehow. But that lie about how it happens, the fake character, the magical character pretending, and, and, and you knowing that he's lying, and winking at you. Um, that creates this whole wonderful thing where, where it becomes a story that you participate in and at the end, you're left with this conclusion, magic. Um, it's, it's a lot like, magic stories. a lot like those stories uh, like the uh, man that went into the future, uh, like the time machine. He comes back to his friends, right? And he tells them his adventure and they all think he's crazy or pulling their leg. And then he says, I'm going back, and he goes down in the basement, and they go to the time machine's gone. But on the desk is a flower. That flower is from another time, doesn't exist on, on our time, in our planet. And that is the uh, objective correlative to the fantasy world. Same as in It's a Wonderful Life. Zuzu's petals are in his pocket. She gave him petals from a flower. When she was no longer born, when he no longer lived, um, those flowers were gone. So in this whole dream time, he never had them. When he came back to reality, there they were again. That's how he knew he was back. Well, those kind of objective correlatives for, for the impossible are what magic is. We have a funny experience. It looked like this guy floated up in the air. Um, 
but he really did, and we were there, and you could reach <laughs> under him, and we, you know, I have no idea how that happened. It's it's like uh, meeting Doctor Who. Come on, we got to go. What are you talking about? I'm going to take you. Uh, you're going to have to help me defeat the Daleks. They're going to destroy the world if, and the universe if we don't do something. <laughs> Come on, no, it's real. Uh, and but eventually, you see the sonic screwdriver, and it really works. You go in the TARDIS, and it actually is bigger on the inside <laughs> than it is on the outside. Well, suddenly, you believe maybe this is the real Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Well, that's kind of like Hamlet walking off the stage and trying to prove to you he's the actual, I'm not an actor, I'm the king of Denmark. I'm Hamlet. <laughs> you know, That's the wonderful thing about the magic story to me is that, that you're doing such a bald-faced lie and proving it. It's part of the fascination of it. It's what draws people to it. And it's, it's a burlesque of a proof. We do the same thing on stage and in real life would be done by somebody demonstrating a kitchen gadget or a new form of surgery mm-hmm. or a new technological wonder. You know, or a new carburetor enhancer for your car, <laughs> <laughs> or miracle oil. You know, um, so you know we're using uh, the same technology of deception that a marketer, a marketeer would use, or CIA, or um, you know, military, um, camouflage, acting, makeup, um, sleight of hand, pickpocketing. You know, all these skills are very little known by the average person. But we have access to all this technology and we can do things with a deck of cards that people wouldn't even believe were possible. And it's technology that we know about and they don't gives us the edge. When any technology is so advanced that um, people don't understand it, it looks like magic. Yeah. And that's what the technology of deception is. It's our resource. We use the same techniques as a criminal, but we use them just for entertainment. Um, we admire the trickster. And I think that's why I became a magician. I think that's why most people do. The trickster is part of my makeup. I was a manipulative kid. And I love clever stuff. I love being the smart one and figuring things out and pulling stuff, fast stuff on people. I really love that and I celebrate it. Now, I, I even love um, terrible people, you know, that do such things. I've been around, and you know, all kinds of people during my lifetime that, you know, I wouldn't want to be I wouldn't want to live their lives but I find them fascinating even Jesus admired the clever thief for his cleverness not for his thievery and I think that's what magic does it celebrates the trickster the man that uses brain against brawn Um, in nature even among animals um, the intelligent ones often the ones that survive over the brawny ones you know Um, and the sneaky snake is celebrated in our literature, you know, in uh, Aesop's fables, you know, uh, in American Indian literature about the raven or the coyote, you know. Um, I think the meaning in magic comes out of the story of the trick itself. This is what I saw. This is the miracle. And that's the first thing. That's the most important thing. You want them to get that clear. And then everything else adds to it to make it a more remarkable story. I met this incredible guy, and he did this. You know, and he really you should see him. Um, that's the kind of story we want to tell. We want to do it, enact it for him, so they feel like they get a piece of it. And if they their interest is whetted, if they sense there's some kind of integrity to why the guy can do all these things, you know, I think that's when 
that's when it becomes really fun. Yeah. I th- when you brought up plays earlier, um, and how people talk about a play, or how when people so uh, when I see a play that's really amazing. I say it was really amazing, but I don't necessarily tell them what happened, what the plot of the thing is. And that may just be because I'm a magician. I know that when you tell somebody the plot, it ruins the experience of them seeing it. It's like, you know, people saying, oh, did you see the guy do the lemon trick? It's like, yeah. you know, you've ruined the punchline. It's spoilers, essentially. Except that with magic, of course, it's, that's exactly what you want is to them to tell the story of the trick. You know, not necessarily the story of the magician. You know, not his backstory and all that. Nobody cares about that. They just get down. What did he do? Yeah. What was so amazing? You tell that story. And the the funny thing is, the character, the magician, the magical character, the one that believes in the magic, not the one doing it. Mm-hmm. That magical character and the trickster character are both being shown at the same time. It's what makes it so interesting. It's kind of like um, a ventriloquist. It's one of the reasons I think it's a related art. We create such a um, an appearance of reality in the personality of the dummy that people can't help talking to the dummy. They know it's the ventriloquist that's doing the talking. They know it's the ventriloquist, you know, who's operating the dummy on their head, but they still can't resist turning to the dummy and talking to him. And those old, uh, you know, stories uh, of the dummy being shot by an IRA guy, that actually happened in the Old West once or twice, where they, they take a pot shot at the dummy for being such a smart mouth. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. The magician character is kind of like that. They know, you know, that there's a trickster behind it, but they want to talk to the dummy. And that's what makes it all uh, less, it, it deflects the challenge. It's a lot, it's, it's a lot better to be fooled by some um, clever old man, you know, <laughs> um, uh, that's it, it's crazy than it is to be fooled by somebody who's just better than you and smarter than you. Yeah. You know, um, so the uh, appearance that the trickster is stupid or that, you know, can be had um, is fake appearance and the audience knows it. But um, it's a buffer. You know, it's, it, it, it makes the magic a lot easier to take. And I think that's, that's a part of it. What do, you want, what do you want your spectators to feel when they watch you? Well, first and primary is the magic experience. Not all the tricks that I do um, will necessarily be heavy magic. Some will be more um, fun, you know. Um, and so, you know, Billy McComb uh, had this idea that you only did one really powerful magic trick. That's the last thing you did, and that's what you want to leave them with so they can tell that story clearly. Mm-hmm. If you tell 20 minutes of different tricks and stuff, it's hard for people to remember what you did or how it went. They'll just say, oh, he was great. You don't want that. You want to say, he did this. It was great. So he would do what he called 20 minutes of nonsense and then do a miracle you know, like the vanishing birdcage or uh, producing a live chicken um, in the middle of a dance floor. Um, <clears throat> but I don't quite agree with that. And of course, his idea of nonsense was things like the half-dyed Hank, which is a perfectly 
good magic. It just isn't. It's not the kind of thing that punches you in the gut. It's not a quote unquote closer. Yeah, it's not a closer. Yep. He believed the closer was the important thing. You should focus on that. But I find that especially in close-up magic, it's a little different. Um, close-up magic, I do all closers pretty much because I don't know how many, much time I'm going to get with the audience. Yeah. So I want to hit them hard from the beginning. And plus, I found that bam, 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 hitting them over and over again makes them weak to the point that they'll believe anything. And then you can actually do simpler tricks and make them seem even more amazing because people have been so um, proved, mm-hmm. you know, by what you've done. So I, I, there are different ways to uh, do that, but it's important to have ups and downs. And some tricks will end softly, and some will end hard. And it doesn't necessarily mean the trick is uh, a stronger trick. Um, I have a Chicago surprise where uh, sometimes the trick is um, a dumbfounding miracle, and other times it's a slap in the face twice that wakes people up, and it's a miracle. But it's like one makes them laugh um, when they when they to say take the force card and then change their mind and I get both of the cards you know the surprise is such it makes them look at on the card on their foot's changed the card in their hands changed they snap and they they make a huge response because of the surprise yeah um, but if they just name the card if they take the card that I want the force card it matches the card under their foot it's been there all this time and if they don't change their mind and I try and make them change their mind and I convince them that they've had a free choice. There's no way, there's no way I could have known what they were going to choose. Um, when that card changes under their foot, it's not a big surprise. It's not a big. I mean, it's a surprise, but it's people just go quiet. What? That's deep astonishment. I like that response better, really. But the other response gets to show off to a, a, a more energetic start. Yeah. So it's a it's a matter of choice how it ends, but. Um, and it's a matter of choice which you like better. But sometimes I like the big surprise. Sometimes I like uh, the, the little soft ending. Um, the uh, surprise with the color changing scarves is that really you see two scarves, so you know it's not a white turning into a red. Um, one, the, the trick is one scarf keeps disappearing. Yeah. Where does that white scarf go? You know. Um, but when Billy McComb took over and made it the half-dyed Hank, um, he opens his hand halfway through the third time he does it, and there's the scarf just died halfway through, red on top and white on the other end. And that ending, instead of a kick in the butt ending, um, it's people go, what? And they just kind of be quiet, you know, what? And so the ending he came in uh, with is, doesn't get the kind of response um, that I want in an opening trick. So I, I usually do the color-changing Hank instead. But what Billy did, he often used that. Um, it was always a middle trick for him, but he often, most often used it for um, an MC bit because the soft ending enabled him to turn over that applause to the next act. He would be, and uh, you would end up with a scarf that's half-dyed white and half-dyed red which I'll save until next year when I have another show. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome. Well, the audience is sitting there going, what? <laughs> and they're really amazed, but they didn't really get a chance to applaud. He said, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome so-and-so. And suddenly they're applauding for the next act, 
with the applause that they would have given to Billy. I the think delayed was, response he then passes on to yeah. the next person. That's great. That's it's amazing. Brilliant. That's the way he, he explained it to me and why he used it that way. And he also used it the same way within his act. That would be a soft opening, uh, a soft closing that would give him a moment to like move and put something down and pick something up while they're thinking, you know. Um, so he, he could use it within the act that same way. So every trick, you know, each trick has a, is kind of own story. It wants you to uh, prove the points to make it magic. Once you help the audience remember that, and uh, it becomes very difficult when you. Uh, a lot of magicians want to bring meaning to magic by slathering it over it like ketchup. You know, <laughs> you know, they want to tell the story to make the magic meaningful or have some experience for the audience. Um, I don't particularly like that kind of thing because uh, basically you're giving one story for the audience to try and remember the story the magician told us that he seemed to think was important, plus the story of the trick, mm -hmm. you know, and that you want to remember all the details so they can defend what a good trick it is. Now, if you're using the trick to tell the story, that's one thing. The trick would be, it's not important. It's just a way of helping illustrate the story. It's like doing string figures when you tell the story. The magic is just a part of the story. Um, it's just as entertaining, but it's not our magic. Yeah, that's the, that's the difference. When magic is being used to tell a story, instead of being its own story, um, it's no longer art for art's sake. It's art for the sake of story or something else. It's uh, so magic is prostituted whenever you uh, use it for some other purpose other than um, amazement. But that doesn't mean that's bad. I mean, we, we prostitute all the arts, you know, uh, uh, art, uh, uh, commercial art, um, all kinds of art used to make our building look prettier or things. There's all reasons for art other than art for its own sake. And magic is the same way. Magic is valuable when used um, by other arts, but um, as an art in itself. What is it your definition of art? Well, I think for me, um, art is when I give expression to what I love. I get somebody else to share and understand why I like magic. Um, it's kind of like a stamp collector. Um, you, can, you can show a kid these whole big books full of stamp and tell them how valuable these are and these, you've been collecting them for years and it doesn't do anything to the kid at all. And he'll still go away wondering why anybody would want to do that. But if you sit him down and you point to a stamp and say, look at this stamp, see, it's, it shows a ship with a big mast and a sailing ship out at sea. And on the top of the ship, there's this little guy hanging off the crow's nest and you know staring out at sea. But here's another stamp just like it, and that guy's not there. It's a misprint. That's just a blob of ink, and it's a misprint. This stamp with the misprint on it, it looks like it's got a little guy float. That stamp's worth $20,000. This stamp next to it, not worth a dime, you know. And here's a, here's a stamp from, uh, this is a, a, a flesh-eating plant from Madagascar. And, uh, you know, this is, and he tells the stories of the stamps. Pretty soon, the kid, goes, oh, I get it. I see why he likes stamp collecting. He might even get so enthused he wants to become a stamp collector, but that's not the important thing. The main thing is he understands why this guy likes collecting stamps. Mm -hmm. 
and they share a human connection. Well, magic's the same way. I want people to know why um, I do magic. I want them to know how much fun it is. And um, my joy comes from sharing people, uh, celebrating the trickster. Um, Bugs Bunny is a trickster character, like you know, find in literature, like the coyote or like um, any of the others. He's way overqualified for prey. He's not in any danger ever from the gangsters, the two gangsters he's with, or Elmer Fudd, or any of these guys. He's way overqualified. So he could get away anytime he wants. They're not going to shoot him, you know. Uh, but he sticks around. Why? Because it's fun, because he likes to keep in practice. So he, he runs everybody around and creates this confusion and manipulates everybody just for the fun of it, for the sake of it, because it's clever. Well, that clever part of our nature is what we want to celebrate, the thing that makes us strong. We want the kids to know about reverse psychology. Here's a little, here's a little thing you can use. Uh, Br uh, Br Rabbit and the, and the, and the um, um, Tar Baby. You know, um, or um, uh, the uh, Br Rabbit and, and we were thrown into the Briar Patch. Don't throw me in the Briar Patch, Br Fox. You know, I don't want that to happen. Well, that's teaching kids reverse psychology. Tom Sawyer, when he does the painting of the fence, mm -hmm. uses reverse psychology. These, these stories of tricksters and con men are meant what? Not, they're meant to educate. <laughs> we want the kids to know about these tactics. Don't be stupid, don't be fooled by this, but also don't be stupid, you might need to use this. Mm -hmm. um, the same, this same ability to lie um, can be used to swindle somebody or to protect the little Jewish family in your basement. You know? Yeah. Uh, it, it, magic is taking no moral stance, really. It's just, it's just having fun um, reenacting all these strategies and using these techniques people don't know, pulling the wool over them, and making them, for a moment, believe something impossible has happened and they've experienced it. And that leaves them with a, a kind of sticky situation where fantasy on the one hand, what if magic was real? What if you could read minds? What if a machine could think? What if we could have um, some kind of device that would enable us to see what's going on on the other side of the world? You know, crystal ball. Um, if you take the magic seriously, um, there's a lot of questions that raise up. What, what's the more, you know, if you, can, if you can produce coins out of the air, why are you doing this magic for money? Well, this can be addictive. I taught it to a guy and he died of starvation. When you start talking about the different surprising things that would happen if the magic was real, now we're getting into the Twilight Zone territory. That's when we're getting into real fun and real more fantasy. See, like I said, I think the first job is to tell the story of the trick. But then once we've got that and we've learned how to tell a story that puts all the tricks together, you know, why mm -hmm. are we doing them in this order and in these tricks? What are we trying to prove with the whole show? Once we have that, then then the story becomes, who is this character doing this show? Why is he doing it? These are all actors' questions. When we say a magician is an actor playing the part of a magician, um, we're not kidding. But it's a, it's a special kind of acting because it's, um, it's kind of like course acting, um, where you know the actor as well as you know the character he's playing. You know, course acting would be like in pantomime or something where the actor might be making comments under his breath about the other actors and everybody's familiar with them and so it's okay. 
uh, Sid Caesar, sketch comedy. You know, there, there's as much fun going on with uh, um, uh, the characters mm -hmm. as with the actors on stage at the same time. Mm -hmm. That kind of double character is what we have in the magic show. And it's a, like the ventriloquist dummy. They recognize the character. They play with him. They engage with him, you know. Um, but they know it's not true. Yeah. And they know the magic isn't true. Um, but the main thing is that, that, that we're, we're creating stories. For, we're not telling people stories. Like, uh, I don't want to do a card trick that tells people the story of the coyote and how he did this and how he did that. I am the coyote. People tell stories about me. I am a trickster. People still tell stories about me. I'm celebrating that part of me that is the trickster spirit. And um, it's fun, and I get joyful doing it. And I think the joy um, um, comes across to people. And they, they, it becomes an actual celebration, the joy of being human, being intelligent, being able to uh, play with each other in this way. Um, that's where my joy comes from, and especially when the engagement with the spectator. When you, you know, I, I, I love the point in the uh, specific resonance where the lady um, puts the card back in the middle of the deck. She lifts half the deck. I put the card back. She closes it, and then she'll very often just square the deck. And I look at her. I didn't say square them up. Did I say square them up? I don't think I did. And I'll turn to her. You're about the meanest woman. <laughs> I ever met. <laughs> but it's okay. It's your turn anyway. And they tap the deck and the card comes to the top and they now the hero. But that fun, that conflict, you want to accent. So that's the kind of thing that doesn't need much of a backstory. That's just what's happening in the story of the trick. Mm -hmm. So when you're creating the magic trick and you're trying to tell the story of it, you will help create character for the magician and you might, you might assign a character to the spectator. And it, they, they'll play it. And if you get them to play it, then it's like, a, it's like improv acting and you're having fun and you're playing back and forth and it's the best, best time ever. Um, so for me, I always want to try and engage as many people as I can during a show as being a part of the trick or commenting on it. To me, it's like the magician has a rope on one end and the audience has a rope on the other end. And you want to keep it taut all the time. Sometimes they pull, sometimes you pull. And that's the joy back and forth, like a couple of dogs. When so it's not about winning. When you drop the rope, you stop and let the other dog pick it up. It's about that pulling back and forth. Mm -hmm. And that's where the joy is. And that's what, to me, being pop is like being Santa Claus 24-7. You know, I, I get to play this part. And it's, it's fun. And people like to engage with pop. They know it's not who I really am. They know um, that Pop is not really from 1910, mm -hmm. but they they kind of want to believe he's really an old man from the South that talks funny and has this character. Um, when I drop character um, in front of people, it can it's be like, very jarring. I'm it's sure. like pulling the head off Charlie McCarthy. <laughs> they, they don't like it. So I found quickly as a, because I was doing this character as uh, uh, close up and stage that it was hard to to drop it without disappointing people. So I just had to find a way of being pop off stage, you know, without the magical character and without being from 1910, but I still have to be this funny old man. <laughs> <laughs> My wife's learned to deal with it. <laughs> <laughs>
but I am pretty much 24-7 in, in character. But it's an offstage character. It's just I use the voice, which is not uh, hard for me because I grew up in the South, and this is uh, a version of, of the way I talk. <laughs> yeah. Just deeper and uh, funnier, older, <laughs> older version. Like my granddaddy. Yeah. How does how does your wife deal with with all this? How does she? Well, um, how long have you two been together? We married in in two thousand. We've been together uh, since about two thousand uh, nineteen ninety six. Okay, great. Met then, and uh, she uh, was married to a guy that didn't talk like this until uh, two thousand five, <laughs> when I started doing this and started having to do the accent all the time. She had heard me talk as a southerner because when I talked to my mom on the phone, I me dropped too. my accent. I was a, <laughs> I was a, an actor, you know. I learned to drop the southern accent when I was a kid. Yeah, and uh, so um, <clears throat> when my wife heard me talk to my mom, it, you know, hi mom, how you doing? No, I'm fine. I'm fine. And then I'd start talking like that for the, for the rest exactly, hour or two. It's exactly know? what my girlfriend says. She says, I know exactly who you're talking to on the phone, depending on what your voice sounds like. Well that's funny. It is. And so how did she how did she how did she react? How did, oh, mean, oh, 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 oh when I when I started being a southern guy full time, yeah. um, it was annoying. <laughs> uh, so I dropped it most of the time I was around the house. But eventually it got hard to go back and forth. And eventually I just, she just learned to accept it. Just, you know. Plus I was getting to be an old man anyway. So, you know, she had to adjust to that anyhow. <laughs> I'll tell you the big, biggest change, um, it was it, it, deadly for my career. Um, I lost when I changed character completely and wasn't doing wit Hayden anymore. Um, I lost all the work on the cruise ships and um, nightclubs and uh, corporate stuff that I had done as wit. They just didn't know this new character and didn't see how to f- fit him into what we'd been doing at a trade show. Sure. You know. Um, so it took me a, a while to get some traction and get, you know, start booking myself like a new act. And about the time we got that going in 2008, the economy went crash. So, you know, we've been still struggling with it. But it's been the most fun I've ever had. And I have a whole two-hour evening show now with Pop that's uh, varied and, and fun. We'll be doing it on uh, um, Dad's Day, with Sunday. I'm doing a show up in Simi Valley with the whole two-hour show. Oh, wow. That's mm. great. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. That's awesome. How do you feel as one of the... No, I hope this you don't take this the wrong way, but sort of as one of the old-timers now, like, and, and the kind of surge in youthful internet magic energy. Well, I love it. I'm, I'm a big fan of it. I, I'm, I'm not a fan of um, telling people to shut their phones off in my show. Um, <laughs> I tell people to light them up, you know, take video, you know, uh, Snapchat it, so we don't care. You know, the whole show is going to be up there anyway, you know. Um, say something nice about us on Twitter. Plus, you might want to look up PopHayden.com, where we sell the amazing miracle oil. You can download it now during this show for five dollars instead of ten dollars. You know, it enables me, um, especially with my premise. You see, uh, Pop does a lot of lateral advertising. I 
I, I sell the uh, uh, <clears throat> medicinal whiskey, Tennessee Sour Mash Medicinal Whiskey. It's good for what ails you. Um, I sell magnet Popade's original magnetized water from California. And uh, I have lots of little videos and uh, uh, commercials and stuff for this product. Well, of course, what happens is that all my magician friends on Facebook, when I do a funny uh, little video about uh, magnetized water, um, they post it. <laughs> they advertise me, but they don't realize it because it's not, it's lateral. They're, they're advertising pop's craziness. It's not as magic. So uh, these kind of things give me a way to, to um, put my name out actually during the performance, during the show mm -hmm. on signs and stuff. Um, I'm selling supposedly magnetized water. There's no such thing. I don't really sell it. The amazing miracle oil, I really have that thing and I sell it. <clears throat> the magnetized water could not do what we say it does. In the commercial, it couldn't. The bottle won't stick to your refrigerator. Yeah, you know. <laughs> uh, but in in the show, it will. So we can't really sell that product. But the amazing miracle oil is everything we say it is 100% pure mineral oil, no additives, chemicals, dyes. So we can sell that, and people do buy it for a souvenir. Um, but yeah, the lateral, all these different um, parts of the show become. It makes it a. a, a a wonderful thing for Pop to advertise himself because he can promote his products instead of himself. Yeah. You know, and uh, show you his inventions like the teleportation device, you know. Um, and um, it also allows me to have a character that can do all the old magic that somehow seems out of place in the 21st century. You know, um, when I'm doing the multiplying bottles with these cartoony looking old fashioned bottles it like, makes perfect sense if if they don't use newspapers any longer I'll still be able to do the newspaper tear because I'll use a newspaper from 1890s yeah. you know um, I can do ropes things with ropes and scarves things that, that um, might look a little funny with a modern day magician in a three piece suit you know but Pop can get away with it mm -hmm. I can do hippity hop rabbits I can do any of the old magic I want to do. And that's what makes it so fun for me. I created a character that I kept enlarging to the point it could do whatever magic I wanted him to do, rather than having a character that limited. I think this happens a lot too when people are creating their characters, they, they over limit them for some reason. I'm gonna be a gambler, <clears throat> so I can't do any magic tricks or card tricks. I'll do demonstrations of, of gambling technique. Well, I go, well, that's kind of odd. You know, um, Erdnaves was a magician. <laughs> um, Wyatt Earp uh, did magic tricks. Sophie Smith did magic tricks. Why wouldn't a gambler do magic tricks? You know, he would do them for his friends and for the ladies and whatever. And, um, you know, of course he could have done that. And he might have done what else? You know, a shell game, all kinds of other things. So I think people, we quit too soon. I, I Why would a real magician be doing magic for a living? Well, I go, you know, we'll just answer the question like an actor would. I, I often do that when I'm talking in, in my oldest uh, close-up magic. When I was with Hayden, I had a concept of the character as a guy who uh, grew up with a special ability. He could make toys change color just with his mind or, you know, a dice flip or coin disappear just with his mind. Um, but this little uh, ability freaked everybody out in his own family as well as outside people. So he learned to keep that dark and not let anybody know about it. Mm -hmm. 
you know. But when he got to be a little older, he found out there were people like him called magicians. And he went to a magic club and found out they weren't like him. They were doing tricks, sleight of hand and stuff like that. So he learned sleight of hand and he loved it. And uh, he was very proud of it. He wasn't proud of being able to change something with his mind because that was just a, a habit, something that he had, you know, his natural gift. It wasn't something you could be proud of. It was just like a freak thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but his magic tricks, he was very proud of. And his sleight of hand with cards, he was very proud of. Um, so when he is doing those for people to make a living, um, sometimes he messes up and he loses his break or, you know, he forgets the card or somebody uh, challenges him and he has to resort to real magic to get out of trouble. Well, of course, to him, that's like cheating. So he'll try and hide that from the audience, that he's using real magic. And that brings up all kinds of interesting ways you can present the close-up magic. Some is real, some is fake, and it's a moment of real magic, and it becomes an interesting story that way. So it's, you stop too soon when you assume, well, a real magician wouldn't do it. There's half a dozen reasons, uh, Lord of Illusions, the guy was hiding the fact he was a real magician by pretending, by being a, an illusionist on stage. And he used real magic to make his illusions. But that was the way he made his money. Other stories, it could be so many different ways. You know, the, the, the cabinet of Dr. La, the, the uh, circus of Dr. Lau, you know, any of these magical characters um, we can bring to life and we can prove who they are. Um, we can bring the story to the people. And it's... It's just the part of the story that is the time you spend with them. And that's all in real time, you know. It's this 10 minutes or 20 minutes you get with them. Mm-hmm. And the bigger, the, the more remarkable that 20 minutes is, the more interesting the character was, the more believable the character was. Um, you say, you have to meet this guy, you know. He's really astounding, you know. That's what you want to get toward. Absolutely. I, I, yeah, I totally agree. And I, I think it's great that uh, you've, you've been able to merchandise a magician. Because, <laughs> and I say that like as a, a high compliment because there's not a way for many people who are magic enthusiasts, people who enjoy magic but don't want to learn how to do it or practice it, to support magicians that they see or mm. to, to actively be fans of magic. You know. Well, a lot of this depends on uh, Pop Hayden getting famous. Well, sure. <laughs> the more famous he is, the more uh, crap he can sell <laughs> to people. <laughs> I understand, but I just I think that that's really cool is that you provide people a tangible souvenir in a way that uh, going to a concert they can get a band T-shirt or. Well, it's also know. it's kind of deflecting the, the pride thing. It doesn't sound like I'm so egotistical when I'm pushing a product. You know, it's Pop Hayden's original magnetized water from California or Pop Hayden's Tennessee Sour Mash medicinal whiskey, mm-hmm. you know, um, or uh, the amazing miracle oil. Sure. Um, those, but those also give me something to do on the Internet to build the backstory more. Um, I don't often get to do the medicine's pitch in my magic show. I only do it <clears throat> when I'm doing my full show with all the uh, uh, other medicine signs and things around it. Um, but it's important on the internet because, you, you know, if, if, if I only have, you know, 15, 20 magic tricks in the world <laughs> that I'm really good at. 
you put several versions of each one of those up on the internet pretty soon you're out of you're out of magic to do yeah it's very helpful to have uh, for your fans to be able to put up a little commercial with a you know a bus in England advertising your magnetized water or you know something like that these little other things you can do about the water and uh, oil and other things you're selling um, and also political you know I run for president regularly mm -hmm. you know um, all of these things help build the character online so that when people leave my show and they look up pophayden.com if you just if you just pop pophayden into Google you'll find hundreds and hundreds of pictures and videos and you know uh, stories and fake websites magnetized water um, I have a uh, a company in Schenectady that has their own website. It's uh, the electric uh, water bc.com, electric water bottling company.com. Um, it's a full website for a corporation, has many pages and stuff. And in the background, it tells where they got their ideas from Pop Hayden, who died in 1910. And uh, uh, so this. This whole thing has more story about, if you look up magnetized water, you'll find that site. And it looks like there's a real factory manufacturing this stuff, like a water bottle. <laughs> <laughs> and if you look up uh, students of a cult, if, if you look up uh, Sphere of Destiny, or the Eye of Cleopatra, which is my crystal uh, ball question answering act, the Sphere of Destiny has a history. And you can find this history in uh, students of occult history.com. It's another fake website. It's all just to support the sphere of destiny. Um, there's uh, uh, sites from uh, archaeologists uh, talking about the Temple of Isis being um, dug up in the uh, Bay of Alexandria and Cleopatra's house. And in that was the um, Temple of Isis, in which was the sphere of destiny. And they talk about it. So the backstory that I t that I basically have for my crystal answering act is supported on the internet. If you were in my show and you look up I of Cleopatra, you'll find one of my sites that backs the story up as being true. If you look up Magnetized Water, you'll find one of my commercials or one of my videos showing um, the actual qualities of Magnetized Water and, you know, or a site um, that's not related to me that um, backs up Magnetized Water. I've created all these kind of things just so that when people go to the internet and they look up Pop Hayden, They'll find all kinds of stuff and keep them busy for hours. It's like it's almost like you are a walking alternate reality. Yeah, but the fun thing is, um, especially in the 21st century, is that uh, when I was a kid, people didn't have the ability to play as much as they kids do today. I love um, the steampunk movement and Dungeons and Dragons and all these things because people have a certain facility mm -hmm. for uh, role playing and for getting into a game uh, with Pop. They, they, you can play the role, but they're also uh, able to talk to Pop in role um, and um, immediately switch to, like how the kids, into you know, reality. Um, on Facebook, Pop is always in character, but people will, they will play along with the character. They'll go, oh, you're such a cheat in a comment. I can't trust you. I go, yes, you're right. You know, we can play back and forth. Sure. It gives you a handle. Um, for your friends and fans to to to, to deal with, like uh, Jack Benny was frugal, uh, <laughs> is one way of putting it. He was supposed to be very cheap, yeah. but whenever anybody said, "Oh, Jack, you're holding on to your wallet pretty tight, aren't you?" Yeah, I am. You know, it, it gave him a handle. Yeah. 
yeah. with which they could address their um, uh, character that they wanted to, to play with. Mm -hmm. And pop is like that. People can, all they have to do is, oh, you're probably cheating. I go, oh, yes, I probably am. You know, <laughs> and we're, we're playing. Yeah. And the young kids today have a great facility for going in and out of character and for role playing like that. And um, it, it's very good with the complicated um, type of acting and playing that we're doing. We're really doing more like role playing. Um, improv acting yeah. than anything else and it's on several layers it's the trickster and the, the fake character the magic character he's creating in, you know, for the spectators the guy that believes in the magic uh, all at the same time and they're playing um, the spectator and maybe the role of the sucker or the role of the accuser mm -hmm. you know um, in the linking rings it's a wonderful my routine uh, with the linking rings is a wonderful thing because I bring the spectator up on stage and assign him the role of being a mean student behind the teacher's back. He's pretending to get his rings back together so every time I turn around he spins like he's kept up with me and I don't know it. Yeah. And so I'm surprised that he's keeping up. Um, and the audience is laughing because the kid is making a fool of the magician behind his back. But the audience knows that I set the kid up to do this. They know that I know what's going on. Yeah. So they have to what? pretend to be a class of unruly students laughing at the teacher. So the kid on stage is involved in a part of the play and the audience itself has a role in the play as the unruly class. Mm -hmm. And we play this whole thing out and it's to me it's just like dancing around with Bugs Bunny. Oh, hide in here, hide in there, oh, in the oven, boom, you know, and it's like you, you get everybody so wound up and having so much fun and playing that they forget to think about the trick until it's done. And once it's done, they're very clear pictures of the rings, two in my hand, two in the spectator's hand, four together in a chain, three on one. All these things, if you try and reconstruct the trick from what you saw, it's impossible. Yeah. Because you weren't thinking at the time. But each position was clearly made so you'd remember it. There's, the conflict creates the positions as, as memories. So when you try and reconstruct it, you're at a total loss because the rings can't really do all the things they did yeah. or seem to have done. Uh, that's a it, that's that's easily my favorite. Maybe it, it, first or second, it'll switch places. But ring routines. I mean, it, I think the the structure of it, the multiple layers of it, and the comedy of it are just thank phenomenal. you. Well, I, it was a blessing when that came together. You know. Um, it, it comes, all these things come together through a process of trying to figure out what the story is and what it looks like to the spectators. Um, it was actually a spectator on the streets of New York back in the 60s, 68, when uh, I was first doing this routine that um, he uh, held the rings up when I turned around. I had my back turned to him for a second and I was undoing mine and, and I was doing the same thing everybody else said, I can do it, you can't. You know, you try it and you can't. Oh, I'll help you do it like this. Try it like this and it never worked for them. Mm -hmm. But this time I was had my back turned. When I turned around, he yelled him up like he had done it. And the audience went nuts. And that was when I decided, well, I have to figure out a way to write that in and let him do it every time. And once I got that, and the, you know, the story began to develop from there. I didn't realize what would happen to the audience. That was an accident. I realized eventually that they were laughing because they were pretending yeah. that I didn't know what was going on. They were enjoying the story, you know, more, more than the reality.
Yeah, it's and they they do it without realizing it too, which is I think the the interesting part. Mm-hmm. Well, that whole feeling that we're having fun together, that magic is a lot of fun. It's all horseshit, but it's it's fun. <laughs> yeah, you know, and and cop pop comes out. He wants to be right there, and um, you know, pop has adventure stories in his background. I, 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 I want him to be like a character from the dime novels where he has adventures back in the day, 1910 and before, uh, with, uh, well, Soapy Smith was friends with Wyatt Earp and Bat Masterson and uh, Pop would have known them too. And he would have had all kinds of Pop in the Vanishing Train, you know, Pop in the Sphere of Destiny, um, all of these kind of like fantasy novels. I want eventually to write. I've been very lucky to get so much together, you know, um, to to accomplish so much of what I wanted to accomplish with this character and with the magic that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm hoping I get another 10 years or so that I can continue to, to flesh it out and get better at, at the performance of it and also with more of the stories and backstories and create, um, you know, uh, a whole character that would, would be like a movie character. Yeah. Already, um, we do a lot of pictures that look like they're taken out of movies. Yeah. That look like they're part of stories. If you look up Pop Hayden on the internet, you'll find pictures of Pop in a cave, you know, with a snake, or um, you know, in a cowboy uh, western with the trains about to crash, you know. And I wanted to create this whole backstory image of Pop, so that um, the magic has a certain amount of resonance when you see it live. It's that character, that guy Pop, you know. Yeah, it's amazing. It, it's like, uh, yeah, again, going back to you, you have created an alternate reality. You, you, you own this pocket on the internet that people can walk into. It's like they're walking mm. through like a force field and everything well, changes. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's been constructed really carefully over a long time, but it's also fun. It's been fun because um, I feel like Pop. Pop is really... A reflection of who I am. I am a guy from another century. You know, well, Pop's actually from the 20th century. He left in 1910. Mm-hmm. He lived in another century, but he's a lot like me. Yeah. I grew up in the 20th century. You know, eight tracks and 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 45 RPM records and you know stuff that seems like forever ago. <laughs> um, when I was a kid, people would talk from about the 20s. My grandparents would talk about the 20s like it was yesterday. It was only 40 years ago to them. Same thing now. The 60s were like 40 years ago to me, yeah. 50 years ago to me. And I'm in this century where I, I can't keep up. There's too many manuals to read. You know, there's too much history to catch up on. And I am um, more forgetful these days, so I forget a lot of facts. But it, the character, Pop Hayden, gives me a chance to cover all this stuff. Well, of course he doesn't know who that person is. He can't watch, you know, he can't catch up on everything. He's still trying to catch up what happened to Nixon. <laughs> you know, he, he's, you know, fighting, he, he's got an 80-year period that he missed. Yeah. You know, World War One, he missed, and World War Two, he missed, and the 60s he's missed. And now he's here with these millennials, and uh, pretty much looks like easy taking. <laughs> you know, for a hardened criminal from the 1890s, yeah. you know, this is a pretty soft, easy place to make a living. So Pop is like a, a sated lion. He doesn't really need to take anybody. 
he can make enough money selling his medicine and playing around doing his magic shows and stuff. It's so easy, you know, to mm -hmm. make a living here. He doesn't need to really take anybody, and he can play about it. The other thing I like is that instead of saying Pop is an expert at the shell game and a con man, he always denies that. Oh, no, I'm a man of science and medicine. Well, I knew a lot of those guys, um, like Soapy Smith, and back in the day, I knew those guys. And I picked up a little bit about how uh, that shell game thing went. If you'd like to see it, I probably uh, I could probably get those old shells out and show it to you. <clears throat> A little fun just now and then is relished by the best of men. If you have nerve, then you'll have plenty. Five draws are ten, ten draws twenty. So obviously, he did it a million times. Yeah, yeah. You know? but, but he would deny. Yeah. You know that he had that, that kind of background. So it makes it all more, all the more fun instead of bragging and showing off. And I think that's the the best, the most important thing uh, that you have to avoid when you walk out there on stage. The audience, they'll assume that you're out there to impress them. You know, and a lot of magicians, that's what they go out with to do. I want to show you what a good magician I am. Mm -hmm. Well, that's about the worst performing situation you can be in because it turns the audience into judges. They sit back like they got cards in their lap. Six, <laughs> nine, <laughs> seven. And then suddenly they're your judges. And if you don't impress them, they're going to hate you and they'll boo you off the stage. And if you do impress them... They won't give you a very good applause either. It's good. I have to admit the kid is good. I have to admit he's really good. I, I'm really good. And that's a terrible kind of applause. Mm -hmm. So when you work out, walk out on stage, you have to know what it is you're going to do. You have to make it clear to the audience that you're there to give them something. You know, it might be a scare. I'm going to scare the bejesus out of you. And then you scare them. You know, want to see something scary? <laughs> well, if you do that and you really scare them, they're going to laugh, wow, wow, that, that was scary. <laughs> Did you see that? That was really good. That was really good. You know, and now they're applauding with enthusiasm because they're uh, thanking you for the gift you gave them, the scare. And you but, were honest with them. Yeah, or, well, you may surprise them. could be a surprise you wanted to give them mm -hmm. or something amazing. Want to pull their leg, make them laugh. Almost anything is better than coming out there to get their approval. Yeah. That's the way I figure about a lot of the uh, cardistry uh, kids today, I, I love that stuff. I watch it a lot. Um, um, but I think that um, as entertainment, um, you have to avoid the idea that you're just showing off because when you do it a few times, people go, oh, that's great. And then um, you keep doing it and they keep applauding. It's like, well, what's in it for them? Yeah. They're just there to tell you how great you are. But um, Leonard Green had this wonderful thing where he splits the card into six eight packets you know, and, and and suddenly freezes. And you can see him going, one, three. <laughs> He's forgotten which packet was which. <laughs> He's trying to reconstruct it so he doesn't lose the chosen <laughs> card. And he finally gets him back together. <sighs> and now it's he showed off the skill, but you didn't laugh. You didn't applaud for the skill. You applauded for the joke, mm -hmm. you know. And I think that's that's a brilliant way of, of approaching it. When you make a fan so that somebody can take a card, not so that you can get applause, you know. And, and basically, with magic, I think that's one of the things we want to do: we'll hide that need for approval and um, sublimate, make it look like we're doing something else. Mm -hmm. But it also is: we really are giving them a scare. We really are making them laugh. We are really amazing them.
Mm-hmm. I know what I'm out there for. It's not to get their approval. It's to make them laugh. It's to make them have fun. What do you? What would you recommend people think about when they are, if they if they don't have like such a specific, well defined character? If their character is themselves, let's say that. Well, their character should be themselves, um, but they might. Where did you learn this magic? Mm-hmm. You were born in the same place, had the same parents, did all the same stuff. But what would your like have been like if you could do? some of the little powers that you're showing here. And so you develop a, uh, you change your, your backstory. Mm-hmm. I was a, a kid growing up in North Carolina and I um, had this little magical ability. I had to hide it from folks. They didn't like it. Or, you know, uh, I was struck by lightning when I was 18. It enabled me to hear th- thoughts that other people were thinking. You know, whatever your story is, you make up that story and um, it doesn't, you know, the more detailed it is, mm-hmm. the more actual experiences you can think of, the more you write it like a real novel, um, the more powerful it w- will show up in your, in your performance. You know, I, when people ask me questions, I know the answer because I know what Pop would say, because I know what his experience would, mm-hmm. would be like, you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, I would say the first thing, first thing is, just people know you're a magician they know you're here to do magic do the magic tricks fool them and have fun you know that's the most enthusiasm is the most important thing and then you know fun having having fun doing it um share finding out what it is you like about doing it why do you like this and then do that and 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 make that fun when you have fun and enthusiasm you're you're most of the way there now you can, as you get more comfortable with making people entertained with the magic tricks and they like them and are remembering them, then you can start adding, you know, who this character is and why is he doing this stuff for this crowd, mm-hmm. you know, and what is it, what is it that he wants to give? At the most, you, you answer questions basically. Why am I here? Why am I doing these tricks for these people? You know, that's the actor's question. You want to. The story starts when you're introduced and ends when you leave you know in between it's all up to you what you show these people and how they perceive you you can let them uh, make assumptions where he's here to he's here to impress me and that's like giving control up Mm -hmm. or you can show them who you are right away and take command and 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 you take charge of your own how you perceived once you start taking charge of how you perceived you're beginning to play with your character who is this guy who do I want him to think he is? You know, uh, make make him as interesting as possible. I think people uh, often can't are not very expressive. Whit Hayden was not a very expressive, very flat um, kind of um, performer, uh, dry performer, cerebral. <clears throat> Pop is juicy. I mean, he gets mad and he gets uh, irritated. He gets he laughs. He 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 loves a fight. You know. He's uh, treading water a lot when he's out of his depth, mm-hmm. you know, on science or something. Um, I, 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 I do science more by the seat of my pants. I think it's more of an art. <clears throat> <laughs> Too much mathematics in science today. <laughs> it's not as good as it used to be. <laughs> yeah. We not enough bias confirmation. <laughs> anyway, so, 
to me, that whole thing is uh, what makes it fun. And you start out just being yourself, but then you imagine fantasy. If you wanted to, you, you know, and this is just a fantasy. What, where would these powers have come from? When would you have learned them? How would you have come by them? Mm-hmm. You know, um, Vernon used to talk about. He'd say, "People ask you, does this take a lot of practice?" Never say yes, because that ruins the magic. You know, oh, oh, it's just something you have to really practice. You know, anybody could do it if you really practice. No, it's better, he said, oh, it's just a knack. <laughs> it's just a knack. <laughs> and, and then people would, what kind of a knack? How would you get that? You know, He's raising all kinds of questions about his past. And that's what you really want to do. You want them to be interested in you. Who is this guy? They, they should want to be asking you questions. Where'd mm-hmm. you come from? Why are you doing this stuff? This is amazing. You know, um, the more interesting you are, the better. And the more expressive you are, the better. So when you're creating your character, it's good to expand his range of expression. You know, um, somebody that is a computer programmer, kind of semi-autistic, you know, laid-back person, um, has a hard time sometimes expressing emotion. And that could be a character. Mm-hmm. And you could use that in your character if that's the way you are. But of course, it doesn't take you any further. If you create a character that's a little more active, maybe more intense, maybe easily surprised, you know, uh, you might you might be able to make the character more interesting, even more screwed up than you actually are. (laughs) (laughs) Do you feel uh, a responsibility to the younger generations of magicians? No. Not yeah. really. I like them, and I want them to come up in magic. I want you know, uh, but it's all you know. It's all I can do is take the stuff that I was given and add to it as best I can, and the way I understand it, and and do my art. I'm not a critic, really. Um, I, I love all the new magic and all the stuff that's going on. I I think there's wonderful things going on. I like to point back to stuff that's kind of fallen out of favor. The, the stand-up lying gentleman mm-hmm. you know that does magic the Billy McCombs the Terry Seabrook type that to me is uh, um, where I grew up That's the, those are the ones that fascinated me and it, when I was a kid it was the character magicians that got me into it um, uh, Duke Stern you know I was a big fan of Duke Stern's and he was when he's um, old Jewish uncles smoked cigars drank whiskey and you know was gruff and talked with a lot of cussing and you know I just wanted to be near him and accepted but you know you know, he was just interesting. Talk about magic all the time. And other old men and, and, and characters, you know, um, Paul Diamond and um, uh, Monk Watson and all these guys. They were the ones that, that fascinated. Who were these guys? Where did they come from? A lot of them came from vaudeville. You know, Whitey Roberts and people like uh, Monk Watson, you know. And it was something I'd never seen. And been around a bunch of these old men uh, drinking whiskey and smoking cigars and talking about magic. That was like my dream come true when I was a kid. I want to give people that experience. I'm going to be the old guy that, you know, um, people wonder how he got to be an old character. Well, the actual fact is what Billy was, McComb was saying about 55, it actually happens whether you try to do it or not. We all kind of become caricatures of ourselves as we get older. Mm-hmm. And we get settled into our character 
you know, and we can become, you know, an old character just by um, consolidating all our um, experiences and, and, and uh, our prejudices and, and stuff like that. For me, pop was a way of staying young, mm-hmm. playing with the young kids. You know, it, it's really about creating a granddaddy character that I can play with uh, people with. Um, it's pop is like a granddaddy character even for old ladies that are my same age. Um, you know, it's an amazing thing because pop is really taking on a oh, you're so mean. <clears throat> we'll play. Let's play. You know, he, he's playing granddaddy, and, and, and these people, they turn into little children. It's like, it's amazing. They, they get it right away. Yeah. Pop is a granddaddy, pull my finger kind of character. Mm-hmm. And he's just having fun and doesn't mean anything. I think, yeah, I, I like that. And I like that. I, I think it's, it's great, the, the, the experience that you talked about just now of, of <laughs> wanting to be with the old guys drinking whiskey and smoking cigars, that's initially what drew me to me. <laughs> that's too. funny. It's because I like that idea. I like the idea that you're in the shady room and there's smoke circling the, the rafters and you're all hunched over and telling each other secrets. And just it's, it's so hedonistic. It is very hedonistic. <laughs> it is hedonistic. Well, magic, of course, I have to admit that I'm a magician largely because I'm not fit for anything else. You know, magic, um, I think uh, most magicians have a certain kind of constellation of mental problems. You know, attention deficit disorder, obsessive compulsive, touch of autism, you know. um, Magic, if you have the exact right constellation of problems, you're a magician. If you have a little bit different mix, your computer program. <laughs> but I think that it's, I always had these problems and it, it, it made it very difficult to work for somebody to make a living. I don't know how I'd make a living. I studied for the Episcopal ministry and I never would have been able to do that job. It requires too much um, discipline and um, organization and, you know, not the kind of stuff that, that I'm particularly good at. Yeah. So magic, and also I'm a late night person, so I you know like to sleep late and you know stay up late. Um, show business and magic was just kind of um, one of the few things I could actually do. And uh, my um, background in philosophy and theater, acting, as I got older, that that helped influence all of that. But I still have all the same problems, and in some ways, Pop is like a master blaster. He's this big machine that I created, and I'm sitting on the top like a little midget, making him move so that he can interrelate with people for me. Uh-huh. You know, he's much better at manipulate at, 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 at being with people. Well, playing than a I am character, myself. playing a character is like wearing a protective covering Town face. It, it gives you freedom exactly it gives you a lot more freedom mm-hmm. um pop is really me i mean i don't change my political opinions or uh, views on art or anything like that to be pop he has all the same opinions i consider him to be a 1900 era progressive sure probably a teddy roosevelt follower big fan of uh, george bernard shaw and you know um hg wells and mm-hmm. you know free thinkers free love um, all that kind of hippie stuff from the 1900s 
you know, Pop would have been at the top of that, and he is today. Mm-hmm. You know, same kind of thing. He would have, he would love the 21st century. You know, a lot of things he was dreaming of in 1910 have actually come to pass now. Yeah. <laughs> so not just acceptable, but encouraged. Yeah, sure. There, a lot of, uh, there were women magicians much more in the 1890s than there are today. So he would have been surprised, you know, that uh, that all changed. And now yeah. it's just coming back that they're women performers. I'm excited about that. I think that it's so important. It is, because it's a whole different story that's been left out of magic. You know, the enchantresses and the, you know, um, magician, lady, uh, magicians from fantasy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like Wonder Woman coming back. I just think that's so great. You know, um, women are finally getting heroes, you know, that let them kick ass. Yeah. You know. I just recently saw Wonder Woman and it was fucking amazing. Ah, good. That's I good was to so hear. emotional too, like just, and I didn't expect to be, but like seeing a really badass. It's like seeing dinosaurs in the first time Jurassic Park. Yeah, you just want to go. Ah! Pretty much. I mean, like dinosaurs. Teared up a little bit. It was. It, yeah. It was. It was. Ama- it really was amazing. And you don't, or I didn't at least. I didn't realize how big that hole had been until it was filled. I was like, mm. holy shit. Why isn't this all the time? Yeah, because it's amazing. You, you've been Batman or Superman your whole life, and you didn't have anybody really <laughs> to yeah. be your equal. Yeah. You know, um, Lois Lane just doesn't do it. No. Wonder Woman, she kicks ass. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was amazing. It was great. And, and I just am so... I, it's, yeah, I'm excited about um, this next generation of magicians being not just open to, but encouraging, and it almost being like a non-issue to have women practice magic and perform magic. Yeah, I think the younger generation, uh, if anything I wanted to give them, it was the the freedom to explore fantasy Mm -hmm. and to be a fantasy character without feeling like people have to buy it. Yeah. You, know, you can you can play it. It's like role play. Yeah. I, I play Pop Hayden. People know I'm not really Pop Hayden, but they still want to talk to the dummy. Yeah. You know. And that's that's the real it, it gets exciting on every level. When I'm performing, um it's the only time I'm really um completely comfortable. Because when I'm performing I'm totally wired. You know, I'm having to watch what I'm doing and what I'm saying. I'm having to be part of the story. I'm having to interact with the people. I'm having to keep an eye on the people in the back of the crowd, make sure everybody's watching. It completely wires me to the to the present. Yeah. And that doesn't happen very often. Mostly uh, I'm self-absorbed and lost in my own thoughts and, you know, scattery. <laughs> That's <laughs> Magic is is when I come out of all that and be, you know it grounds you. It grounds me. I remember uh, the great Willenda, uh, the grandfather of uh, Nick Willenda. Um, he just before he died, falling off the wire, he was being interviewed, and some journalist asked him. He says, "Are you ever afraid to go up on the on the wire?" He says, "Young man, I've spent ninety ninety eight percent of my life just waiting to go up on that wire 
that's 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 show business. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I feel like that's where I belong, and that's where I'm comfortable, and and that's where I have the best time. You know, is performing. Everything between performances to me is kind of like uh, build up. You know, preparation. You know. What do you feel when you when you finish a performance? You're done. You've been successful in creating the illusion and the story and the. the well, it depends on the crowd. You know, if, if you if you've been successful and the crowd was with you and you, they had a lot of energy, you walk off feeling, you know, fantastic and full of energy. If you get a crowd that for some reason, you know, doesn't work, um, they suck all the energy out of you. You keep trying to get them excited and you know. You don't get anything back. You leave those kind of shows like a whipped puppy, you know, mm -hmm. just uh, tail between your legs and feeling awful. That doesn't happen much anymore to me. Thank goodness, Pop has gotten to the point that uh, you know he he gets a lot more of uh, of success than, than failure. But it still can happen, you know. Sure. You never know. I, I remember I walked on stage in the Palace of Mystery once, and um, my friend Peter Pitt was the MC, And uh, he uh, finishes his act, and then he is gonna introduce me. And he comes out and says, ladies and gentlemen, um, for those of you um, who weren't able to keep up, uh, the Dodgers lost the pennant. And now, here's Whit Hayden. <laughs> 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 that was a bad show. <laughs> and he did that, I think, on purpose. I was yeah, going to yeah, ask. Yeah, no, he did it. He just did it to, you know. That's funny. Push me. <laughs> <laughs> what did you say to him after the show? Oh, I just, I just told him what an asshole he was. <laughs> he said that he knew. Everybody knew. <laughs> That's really he was funny. a funny, funny man. That's really funny. Well, we've done about two hours. How do you okay. feel? I feel okay. You feel great? Yeah. Are you all right? Yeah, no. You I get everything great. you need? Yeah. Yeah. This, I, I do, if you wouldn't mind, I, you know, I just uh -huh. would like some stories about the castle in the 70s and hanging oh, out okay. with Vernon and, you know, other people haunting the joint. I don't remember a whole lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> Those are my heavy drinking days. <laughs> I had some funny experiences, you know, um. Vernon um, could be very ornery, and um, you know he was uh, sitting outside. Um, he was sitting outside the uh, um, castle, uh, the, the, the close-up gallery at the castle at his table, which was out there. And this guy—I'm um, not going to say his name—but he um, was not a very good magician, working in the close-up gallery. And he wanted Vernon to come and see his act really badly, so he kept pushing him and pushing him, and Vernon had heard he wasn't any good and didn't want to sit through it. So finally goes in and sits through it. And then he leaves without saying anything, goes back to his chair. And after all the people leave, that guy comes out and he goes up to Vernon and asks him, he says, well, what did you think? He says, well, you, you obviously have no 
love for the craft because you haven't practiced or worked on the act to any degree that I can tell. It's, it's insulting to go out there without a prepared pattern, without knowing what you're going to say with all these ums and ahs and stuff. And you're not very good with people. You, you know, they don't like you. You, you, you have a, an obnoxious kind of uh, personality where you're, you're uh, showing off. And, and, and I, I think you'd be better off in an occupation that doesn't involve interacting with people. I think maybe uh, an accountant or something like that. <laughs> That's brutal. <laughs> <laughs> well, the guy was crushed. Yeah. And he went away like a whipped dog and comes back and doesn't come back and and it doesn't finish out the week in the close-up room and um somebody eventually tells vernon what happened he said that guy that you gave him that tongue lashing he left he never came back and uh vernon says problem with that kid he couldn't take um couldn't take honest criticism <laughs> oh my gosh well you wouldn't want to be on the wrong end of that the first thing Vernon ever said to me when I was working the castle uh, I never had the nerve to go over and talk to him when uh -huh. I first got here in the mid 70s and uh, finally I'm going through past that table where he sat and he yelled out quit quit I go yeah you hold the egg wrong <laughs> I go, what? And he sat with me um, and and showed me how to hold the uh, egg for the silk to egg trick so that the egg, uh, you know, um, wouldn't look so obvious to the audience. It's a way of bending your wrist so it comes in this way. And uh, then he sat down and he, 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 he wrote out all these. Uh, oh, my gosh. This is Vernon's handwriting on a cocktail napkin from back then. And it's all the jokes for the egg trick. Exactly. Egg Extraordinary. <laughs> he just wrote out a bunch of egg puns? Yeah. Holy fuck. This is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I've never used a single one of them. Good. Yeah. <laughs> but he thought it would be good for my patter. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, the patter. This is the coolest thing I've ever Isn't held cool? in my hands. Wow. <laughs> That's probably from the 70s, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Um... So that's a good story. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. <laughs> it changed my, Vernon, you know, um, it was Vernon and Billy McComb that changed my name. Uh, my real name is Whitney Haddon. Um, but uh, Billy McComb, as MC, kept uh, tripping over that. He couldn't say Whit Haddon. It was too aspirate or something. And he, uh, uh, one night, um, he asked me to, go out with him. He said, we're going over to the Copper Penny, uh, a Copper Kettle. You want to come? And it was Vernon and him. And um, I think Joe, um, anyway, a couple other guys. We went over to this place and they immediately turned up after we got our food and started talking to me. And, and Billy said, you know, Hayden is just too hard to say over a microphone. You should change it to Hayden. With Hayden would be a lot easier to say. And Vernon goes, yeah, do you want to spell it different from Tom Hayden or uh, Pat Hayden? Uh, and, and you spell it like Hayden. And then four letters over five letters, that would look good on a marquee. And, you know, they, they argued with me all night. And, you know, <laughs> we finally settled on the name and the spelling. And I went home at three or four in the morning and woke up my wife, my first wife, and uh, told her that um, 
and she was furious. Oh, where you been? I, I, I thought you were dead <laughs> on the highway. You didn't call. Well, honey, I was with my great heroes in magic, you know, Billy McComb and Di Vernon, and, and they want me to change my name. I think it'll make our career. And I gave her all the arguments for changing the name and what happened is we settled down and everything was good. And I changed my name and Whit Hayden um, until 2005 when I became Pop Hayden. Well, uh, uh, a couple of weeks after that whole thing happened, um, my wife was sitting at the bar, the main bar, the palace bar. And uh, Billy McComb comes out of the palace bar and walks up right beside her, not knowing her, turns to uh, the, the bartender and says, Ed, that Walt Whitman has one of the finest linking ring routines I think I've ever seen. <laughs> and my wife comes bursting through the uh, door to the dressing room. He said, Billy McComb doesn't know you from Adam. Where were you that night? <laughs> so I had to get Billy and uh, Vernon and all of them to line up and, and tell her. Testify. Testify that really was true. <laughs> That's amazing. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. There's just a couple, um, you know, final questions. Okay. Uh, what's your favorite non-magic book? Non-magic book. Um, well, I guess it would be the Deptford trilogy. Well, it's really a magic book, though. Um, I've just been reading a book called uh, Chaser about a, a, an Australian shepherd uh, dog. It was really good. I guess I like I like novels. I, I don't read novels too much anymore. Um, I've been too busy writing my, <laughs> my own novel. I've been doing a lot more writing than uh, reading in the last 15 years or so. Um, I want to eventually get, you know, a novel written about pop. Yeah, that would be amazing. Well, so uh, who's your favorite author then, or just thinker, maybe? Well, I guess uh, the last, well, thinkers, I I studied philosophy, so I, you know, I'm a big fan of Kierkegaard. Um, okay. He's my favorite philosopher, and I just right now, um, I, I used to like uh, Talhard de Chardin, the theologian, a Jesuit uh, theologian, and uh, right now they're just, uh, I just read a whole thing about the cosmic consciousness that the universe might be conscious according to uh, quantum theorists, certain quantum theorists, and that made me think about Talhard de Chardin again uh, just the last couple of days, and he had a, a theory for that all matter was conscious, wow. you know, just at different levels of time. Uh -huh. A rock has a very slow consciousness. That's fascinating. Yeah, but they're saying stars may even have consciousness of a sort. You know, it may be a property of the universe itself. And I go, well, that's very much like Tyler Deschard. I have to go read him again. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Great. Uh, favorite magic book? Uh, Our Magic. Um, Our Magic is the basis of all my theory of magic and the way magic interacts with story and theater. Um, it's hard to pull the information out of that. It's kind of like Erdnay's. It's more is hidden than, than obvious, but it's, it's a source of great stuff. Um, they really talk about um, how you combine theater with magic and magic with theater. And um, that was really the, the thing that, that cued it for me in my head how this whole story thing works. 
That's really cool. I, I, yeah, that book is incredible. The 22 rules of magic, I used to take them out of that book and just put them on a piece of paper and just hang them up at my desk so I could look at them every day. Uh, Johnny Thompson, uh, I don't know if he still does, but he used to read that book once a year just, oh, wow. to, just to make sure he got it. Um, so I think it's, yeah, yeah, I think it's still the best book. I'm a very big fan of Darwin Ortiz, uh, Designing Miracles and, and Strong Magic. Those are excellent books, which I pretty much thoroughly agree w with. I wrote the introduction for Designing Miracles, but um, it's, uh, yeah, he's, he's very good. But his, his stuff, I think, also, is, he would say, comes from our magic. And uh, the arguments I used to get in with Larry Jennings, um, we always settled it by referring to our magic. <laughs> he would accept their, he would accept theirs law. What kind of arguments? Theirs. Well, um, he he hated when I did the uh, uh, specific resonance routine with the ambitious card, with a card to wallet. I bought the wallet from him, and he still complained. It was his Paul to Paul wallet. They put out those were um, eel skin wallets, um, and I bought one and. That was when I started using the card to envelope. Uh, but I did the specific resonance and then had the chosen card, the ambitious card, end up sealed in the envelope. And he says, you're mixing effects. You know, and I said, no, I'm not. And we argued about it. And um, it turned out that they really, um, we're not mixing effects. We looked in our magic and it said the only time you can mix effects is when you uh, combine an effect of repetition with one of surprise. And I said, that's what this is. The ambitious card is effective repetition and it has to go to an element of surprise. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, but you're changing the effect. And I go, what do you mean? And he says, you know, the, the, the card coming to the top is not the same effect as a card appearing in an envelope. And I went, well, yeah, it is, really, if you think about it, it dematerializes in the deck, comes up through all the other cards and rematerializes on top and does that a few times, and then it dematerializes and goes through my coat, through my pocket, into the wallet, into the envelope, mm -hmm. you know, and, and rematerializes in there. It's like a further proof of the whole thing. Well, we argued and argued, but when we finally got to uh, that thing in our magic that said surprise is the only way, is the best way to end an effective repetition to combine those two effects. We agreed. It wasn't until years later uh, that I I found out ex Gordon Bean and I were talking and I told him this story and he said, well, a big part of it is that, you know, Larry understood effect differently than most people. And uh, that may have been why you were getting the problem. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, he was basically a tactician and not much of a philosopher of magic. And when he saw uh, uh, effect, he usually had a colon after it and a description of the plot yeah. of a trick. You know, So to him, the plot of the trick, um, the card coming to the top, yeah. you know, was the effect. And what um, our, uh, our magic is talking about is the type of, um, of, of theatrical effect. Is it a transposition, a transformation, um, a surprise, or repetition? Uh, mm -hmm. Repetition. Yeah. So uh, 
they were because they describe it if it's a transformation you want the music to start at the beginning and end at the finish when it's completely transformed and they were talking about different ways to present these different types of illusion so when they say effect they mean theatrical effect mm -hmm. and when um, you read about effects in, in Fitzky he's talking about what kind of law is being broken what kind of physical law the effect is a uh, violation of the law of gravity mm -hmm. you know or matter can't be in two places at once so it's, you know effects are levitation whatever you know a, a vanished appearance you know matter cannot be destroyed you know yeah can be transformed all those things well that's what he was talking about but then Larry was actually talking about something even different the effect colon which is a plot and that's one of the problems I think with magic in general is that we don't have uh, we don't have a philosophy of magic we don't have a, a, a it's not a book of guidelines right we or don't have any, we don't have we haven't agreed on our terms yes exactly. you know it's like we don't have we, we don't have the basis for that because we haven't got a set of agreed upon terms it's not an official nomenclature. Yeah, and uh, that would help a lot, I think, because some of it's very antiquated. Mm -hmm. And even, like I said, I think the whole name magic is, is a bad name for what we do, because magic is just one theme of the impossible. Mm -hmm. You know, it's that's magic is too limiting, because you could do a whole show of teleportation devices and mechanical devices and claim it was all electronics. Mm -hmm. The audience knows the form. The form is a demonstration and this is a lying demonstration. So we know what you're going to do is try and convince us of something that isn't true. Mm -hmm. You know. That's interesting. It's a lying demonstration. Yeah. We're uh, and they know that's what it is. Yeah. And so yeah, they, of course, it, it doesn't matter what the theme is. We could say it's a ghost, it's demons, you know, it's science, it's mm -hmm. alien technology, it's future technology. It could be alchemy, ESP, ghost, whatever. And it doesn't matter. The audience gets it right away. They get the form of it. They, they don't say, well, that's not magic. I like that a lot, a lying demonstration. And then the, the last question is, what was the... I So I've been saying what was the hardest time you've ever been fooled, and that that has a subtext of astonishment is the most important thing, and I don't necessarily agree with that. So what is I can your, remember the first time I was really fooled. Oh, yeah, please. Um, I was about six and uh, <clears throat> I went with my brother and a couple of neighbor kids over to this guy's house that lived about a block or two away and uh, he was 14 he had his little um, laboratory in his basement and um, it was a chemical laboratory he had one of those Gilbert uh, chemical sets you know big ones mm -hmm. and had all these fancy uh, lab equipment, you know, on the, on the table, uh, test tubes and things. Flasks. And, and yeah, flasks and stuff like that. It was very neat, you know. And he, he showed us this powder. He had a test tube full of powder. And he said, um, this is the formula I've been working on. I wanted to show you. It's, it can make you uh, young again. I know you guys are not much interested in, but I'll show you something neat. And he goes over to the window seal and picks up something, brings it over and puts it on the, on the table, on the counter. Um, and it's a dead fly. And he uncorks the test tube and pours a little powder on that fly. And it sits there and we all stare at it. And nothing's happening. I'm looking around and, 
and he's like really stared at it. And so I stare back at it and it moved. And pretty soon this fly crawls out of the salt and brushes off and he, he kicks it a couple of times and it stands back up and eventually it just flies off. Well, uh, <laughs> we all left, uh, and never, nobody ever said a word about that whole thing again. I never asked anybody about it, never said it, told anybody about it. I just, that was just too much. I was just overwhelmed. And then when I was about 14 myself and became a magician, you know, I read this trick and how it was done. Yeah. You know, and... That's a fucked up thing to do to a kid. <laughs> I know. It's, well, that's real charlatanry. Yeah. You know, that, that was like, you know, he, you know, he, he really had me. Mm-hmm. And it was like real to me. Well, you can imagine the dreams I had and the thoughts. What if that was real? What if you could bring something back to life? What would that be like? And, you know, oh, man, my head exploded for a long time after that with this secret story of this impossible thing that I'd witnessed. It's like I'd been in a horror movie. Yeah. You know, um, but well. I have to say it really made me think it really was a theatrical experience mm-hmm. as well as a fraud. I'm glad I found out how yeah. it happened, yeah. and so I could put it back in perspective and everything. But that was the the most powerful experience I had of being tricked. You know, uh, I believed it was real. Yeah. You know, um, when I was about 14 or 15, I went to Abbott's Magic Convention. I took a bus from North Carolina to Colon, Michigan, all by myself. My parents were nuts, but <laughs> it was also because at that time it was a different time. You know. We didn't have fear of kidnappers and everything. Sure. So anyway, um, I went up there and I had an experience. You know, at the Abbots, you stay in people's homes. You know, they have like 10, 15 people staying in somebody's home, sleeping in bags, sleeping bags on the floor. But mostly nobody slept. Everybody stayed up all night and did magic for each other. And, of course, as a young kid, I stayed up pretty much three days straight. And um, this old guy does a trick um, that blew me completely away. Um, as I remember, it was late, late, late night, and everybody was doing tricks and turning, and it came his turn. He, he put a 50-cent piece, showed it on both sides, put it on his hand, his hand open right over the table like this. And he closed his hand and squeezed, and you heard a clink. Then he opened his hand back up, and there were two quarters and a half dollar was gone. And his fingers were separated, and he turned his hand over, and those two quarters dropped on the table, and there was nothing in his hand. It was the most amazing thing I had ever seen in my life, and I remember it clearly today. I know it's not what I saw. Yeah. I know <laughs> this is the story that I told myself. This is the story of the trick that I told myself later. And I... I know that if I saw the same thing again, I would know exactly how it was done. It was because I didn't know the techniques at that time. It was probably something like a, uh, something done with a holdout gimmick, mm-hmm. you know, or, or something like that, that I didn't know about at the time. Yeah. But I remembered every detail of the presentation, even though some of that couldn't have been true. He must have closed his hand over or something first, but I remembered it going like this and like that and then dropping the coins. And that's the way I still remember it clearly, clearly in my mind, like it really happened that way. So there's no way for me to solve it, no way for me to come to a solution, because I, 
I don't remember enough other stuff to give me a hint wow. what he really did. You know, But one of the things that helped me understand what the nature of the magic story is, it's a story as you remember it. Our job is to help you remember the story the way we want you to remember it. Yeah. And if we do that, then you have a memory you can't shake and you can't solve, you know, until somebody comes along and solves it for you, tells yeah. you the secret. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Bob. This well, it's my pleasure. Amazing. You're going to edit this stuff up, right? No, this no? is perfect the way it is. Should I, should, when I, when I do the intro, should I call you Pop or should I call you Whip? Well, you can say Pop. Pop Hayden is my stage name. That's what I go by all the time. But Whit is my real name. Whitney yeah. is my real That's the only part of my name is real. Hayden is <laughs> fake. <laughs> Pop is fake. But Whitney is my real name. Yeah. Um, it's my granddad's name. Well, thank you so much. I You're appreciate really it. This is wonderful. It's perfect. Okay. Well, let me know when it comes. Thanks so much for listening to Magical Thinking. If you enjoyed the show, head over to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Magical Thinking and become a patron to support the show and get access to exclusive content. Feel free to interact with me on Patreon, through the Facebook group, which you can find by searching Magical Thinking, or by emailing podcast at artofmagic.com. Follow us on all the social media channels and tune in every Thursday for a new episode. I'll see you next Thursday. Cheers. Cheers.